So a basic review um, that, that we're doing uh, is that, uh, oh, let's see what it is going here. That king's name is so hard. There it is. I want to make sure I've got it. Okay. Uh, Ajata Satu. Yes. Ajata Satu. Yeah. Okay. Because that long <coughs> A is there. Aja. Aja. Ra. No, is that a T? No. Ajata Satu. With the emphasis on that second day, ajata. Oh, so when when it's got that thing on it, it means it's um. It's a long, long a. It's a long one. Okay. Uh huh. Like um, <clears throat> you'll see up in the uh, a few lines above, uh, uh, panchanapati. One who is retired. So the word pa, pati. And they're uh -huh. making sure of it. That's why that letter is, is there like that. And <clears throat> I think that what happened is uh, when languages evolved with scripts like this, they, in the beginning, tried to put every sound as a different letter. But in right. modern English, we say, no, we have a whole lot of sounds for each one of the uh, letters of the alphabet. Mm hmm and so that, that uh, A then has that long A sound uh, to, to show. So mm -hmm. that's why all these di uh, diacritical markings are there. Uh, because the, uh, that actually shows something that was in the Sanskrit script, yep. the ancient script. Uh, that, like the dot under the M, I don't think anybody knows how to say an M as a distinction from the dot under the M. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because it's a, a long M, especially at the end of the word. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because that's where you see that M with the dot is at the dative case. Like in Buddha, when it's in dative cases, Buddham. What's so dative? Dot under it means it's a very long sounding M. Buddham. Sernam. What's the dative case? Pardon? The dative case? What, what dative is that? The dative case in English, we'd call it the objective uh, case. So, Buddham Saranam Gachami means I come to the Buddha. Right, okay. <clears throat> it's not the Buddha did, it's that it happened to the Buddha, my mm -hmm. coming. Uh, yeah. So, that makes it in dative case, and the dative case is used often. used often in uh, uh, in the way the Tapali is set up. Yep. That's part of then the reason why it sounds so poetic when it's spoken, especially since they take advantage of it and speak it poetically. Uh. Where in English we often have to search for a rhyme, but the rhymes yep. are just, uh, you, can, you can make any word rhyme by ending it the way that you, you would. Yep. <laughs> uh, you can see the roots of that, in fact, in the English language with words like him and them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's the old uh, uh, dative case from the uh, uh, Indo-European 
language system. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. That's, uh, yeah, never thought about that. <laughs> okay, so as we're going into the sutta uh, with this king, what the setting is, is that um, it's a nice night, but he's restless and kind of bored, and, and so he wants to go out for the evening. And his ministers give him five or six aesthetics to go see, and he doesn't want to. But then he's talked into go seeing the Buddha by giving that magical expression, itipiso bhagawa eraha samasambuto, okay? Uh, so that one. Uh, and so that it gives him the, uh, uh, the gumption to get up and go. He took all of his elephants, or we don't know all, but it certainly wasn't 500 as a number that you would use in English, but rather the expression of a, of a large gathering. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> and so he went out to see the Buddha, and the Buddha immediately starts questioning him. Yep. If you notice, that's the style of the Buddha, and that I use it on a regular basis also, of asking the, the students questions to get them, uh, uh, let us say, uh, to find the, the right frame of reference. And so uh, the Buddha asked him, and he gives a long explanation. Well, I went to this guy and found that, and this guy and found that. Uh, we went to Naganataputta and found out that uh, they do everything in the sense of restraint, to restrain the body, to restrain the, uh, 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 oh, one of them that I haven't mentioned is the one about keeping the arm raised in the air. Have you seen those aesthetics or heard anything about them? I think I, I, I saw something in a movie once, in an Indian movie that my parents were watching. Um, okay, probably not in Gujarat, but over in Bihar and uh, um, uh, in that in that area beyond the Deccan Plain. Right, that's where you will find these kinds of aesthetics. The first place I ran into them was in Hyderabad, but Hyderabad is actually south of this uh, uh, area, which is where. Um, the Bengali language is. That's also the area where um, Calcutta is, uh. and the, and the very famous cities of the Buddhist time, uh, Rajgiri and Saranath. Uh, there is also the mention of Lumpini, which is where he was born. There was also uh. a lot of stuff about Varanasi. In fact, Varanasi, the very holiest city in India, are uh, Banars which is on the Ganges. That's where many people throughout India have their corpses sent to have them cremated on the banks of the Ganges. All right. Interesting. And so um, that restraining, for instance, by holding the arm in the air, if a guy holds his arm in the air like this for five years, it will actually start to atrophy due to its lack of use. Yeah, I bet. Uh, but this is actually a practice for restraint. And that uh, not to do it all the time, but to, you know, five minutes here and there, holding that arm up, actually it begins to change all kinds of ways. The texture of it, the feeling of the hand. Uh. 
Um, and so uh, that restraint that Naga Nataputa had his guys through, and he told the king about that, but he didn't say that there what the benefit of any of that stuff was. Mm. That was what uh, um, uh, Ajatasatta was looking for. Mm -hmm. He was looking for the practical reasons of why do you guys go out into the woods? Yeah. And so uh, when he gets to the end of it, the end of it is with the uh, the aesthetic uh, who he takes the position of I don't have to answer any question. Yep. By doing so, in a way, he's actually giving an example of the fruit of the aesthetic life, because I don't have to get into any of your guys' uh, discussion. <laughs> yeah. But the king couldn't quite get that. Yeah. And it's also <clears throat> not really the teachings of the Buddha from the perspective of what's actually valuable and useful, because there are some valuable and useful things to gain by seeing how things are, and yet this guy doesn't want to look at anything. Yep. All right. He's just saying, no, I'm not going to take that position. I'm not going to take it on that. I don't know if there's a... I'm not going to say I don't know. I'm just going to say I'm not going to take a position on there is a God or there's no God. There's afterlife. There's not afterlife. There's this or that. I'm not going to take a position on it. Uh-huh. Okay. So after the king goes to these guys, he factually says that this guy is the most stupid of all. Yep. This one was the most stupid because he wouldn't take a position. At least the Naganakaputas had some sort of practice, the practice of restraint. And so now I'm going to stop restraining this arm and give it some rest. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, now the Buddha comes and um, asks him another question. And so, or actually, he goes on with it. And so, I ask the Buddha. Again, it's not Buddha in the Pali. It is... Uh, Bhagavad. Soham uh, Bhante. Bhagavan Tampi. Puchami. Okay, so it's actually the Puchami is to ask the question, and then uh, again here is talking about fortunate. He's saying that, uh, uh, and by the way, the word Tapi at the end of it is actually the word for now. I'm not even sure why the dictionary couldn't see that. I think they divided it. Uh, right. If they had divided it after the end and before the T, then there wouldn't be an opi. It's actually compi. And we get that word tempo, tempani. I mean, it's right there. Oh, yeah. Okay, tempi. Okay, so it's saying uh, so come, Bhante, which is uh, um, uh, Bhagavan Tampi which means you are the fortunate one now. But uh -huh. again, that word Bhagwan is used. Uh, and so the translator translates that as Buddha. But the word Buddha is actually uh, not translated. It's Bo, like in Sampo Jana, the awakened one. 
so um, again, the issues of translations. So mm-hmm. we could be even in simple things like this. And so I asked the Buddha, no, that's not exactly what happened. It's the one who is fortunate now. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now. Right, right now in this <clears throat> moment, Bhagavan. You could, you could say that he's acting godly. And that would be the way that we would say it in English, yeah. okay? He's, he's godly rather than a god. He's godly. Uh, and so the question is, basically he's talking about all of these different fields of endeavor. He breaks them into different groups. The first group is like those that would be in service of the king. Elephant riders, cavalry, charioteers, archers, uh, uh, food servants, warriors, chiefs, princes, even his mm-hmm. sons are in that group. Charges, great warriors, heroes, leather-clad soldiers, and the sons of the bondsmen. Okay, this bondsman here—that's uh, basically the word slave that we would use because they're oh. indentured; they can't get out of it. And that's an important point because that's exactly the point that the Buddha has made here. He then includes all of the people who would be in the, uh, the city taking care of all of the people who were around, including bakers and barbers and bathroom attendants and uh, uh, garland makers. They'd used a lot of garlands back there. Garlands mm-hmm. are actually flowers, and if you've got any history of India, you know that they're still into it. Yep. <laughs> they Lots are into flowers. it so big time. They haven't dropped that habit after all of these years. Uh so all of even accountants, uh, all of those kind of guys, and they bring happiness and joy to their families and friends by being able to have a profession and get something done. And the king thinks that all of this um, uh, is conducive to heaven, ripens in happiness, and leads to heaven. Mm-hmm. If that's true for all of those guys working for the king, then why isn't the king happy? Exactly. <clears throat> so he's missing something there. And he says, sir, can you point out a fruit of the aesthetic life that is likewise apparent in uh, the present life, in, in this lifetime? Because mostly all of the aesthetics and the Brahmins especially are always talking about the future, what you're going to get in the, the next life. Mm-hmm. Uh, even this quality of leading to heaven. That's actually something worth looking into. Okay. Leading to heaven. Yeah, that's what it says. The saga is the leading, but the uh, sam vatam. That's heaven, isn't it? Yeah, that would be the heaven. Uh, okay. That sam vatam. Yep. Uh, but I'm not sure that I would translate it that way but that's what they're using in the dictionary so okay but the word heaven that's a christian word that's a christian state yeah and so i wouldn't necessarily say that the, they had a full-blown idea of heaven that far back in time that mm-hmm. in fact heaven has been uh let us say beaten with a hammer, malleable, and making changes probably every century since then. 
Yeah. Uh, but the real question is, can you point out the fruit of the aesthetic life that's likewise apparent in the present life? In other words, the benefit of one's labors shows that they're at least getting some value out of it. Uh-huh. Uh, and the Buddha answers, I can, O king. Saka, Maharaja. What do you think, great king? So now he's going back and asking him yet another question. I can answer you by asking you a question. What do you think, great king? Suppose you had a person who was a bond servant, a worker. They get up before you and go to the bed after you. They are uh, obliging, behaving nicely, speaking politely, and gazing up at your face. They think the outcome and the fruit of good deeds is just so incredible, so amazing for this king. Uh, Achisuta is a human being, and so am I. Yet he amuses himself, supplied and provided with the five kinds of sensual pleasures, whereas I am a bondservant, his worker. I get up before him and go to bed after him, and, and a longing, behaving nicely and speaking politely and gazing up at his face. Should I do good deeds? Why don't I shave off my head and beard and dress in ochre robes and go forth into life of the homelessness? So, uh, and actually, you can see now that the Buddha is playing a trick on the king. After some time, what, uh, this is what they do. Having gone forth, they've lived and restrained in bodily speech and mind, living content with nothing more than the food and clothing, delighting in seclusion. And suppose your men were to report all of this to you. What would you say to them? Bring that person to me. Let me once more be my bondsman and my worker. Now think about that in the sense of the United States, about the runaway slaves and the free. They didn't want to let them free. Uh -huh. But in this case, the Buddha is asking him, well, this guy is actually coming to be like me or like us here in the woods. Nope. Um, and that you've actually come out here to seek my advice. All of this is kind of implicit in there. And so uh, rather than taking the normal slave owner, well, he's my property and I've got to go get him and I don't care if he's... Um, practicing out in the woods. He would say, so Ajita said, no. No, sir, I would not. Rather, I would bow to them, um, rise in their presence, and offer them a seat. I'd invite them to accept robes, on food, lodging, medicines, and supplies for the sick, and I'd arrange for their lawful guardian and protection. Now that's interesting about the uh, uh, the uh, the lawful guarding and protection is that the setting of this place is in the grove in that area. 
mm-hmm. that is very similar to the bigger one and the more important one, uh, which was Judge's Grove mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in King Passanati, who uh, the story is uh, Anthropedica uh, literally paved the place with gold in order to get the prince uh, uh, to sell it. But part of the deal was is that this uh, Jutta's Grove was going to be guarded so that only monks and people coming to see the monks were allowed in there. The mm-hmm. king, Jatus and, uh, and Anthropitica, the wealthy people who provided the groves, actually provided attendance. Mm-hmm. And here's an indication also uh, that uh, King Bimbisara's son is going to continue to do the same thing. Yep. That these places are actually guarded, uh, not by a by a force of army dressed or anything, but just you know one guy mm-hmm. asking the question, "Who are you, and why are you come uh, into this area?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, that's the kind of extent that uh, uh, that the royalty would do. Not just robes, but they would also have employees. <laughs> Why doesn't the guard go do all the servant work for the king? You see, now the king is actually losing not just the first guy, but the second guy, too. <laughs> wow. So that's a major change. Um, what do you think, great king? Is this, if this is so... There is a fruit to the aesthetic life apparent in the present life or not. So now the king has to say, well, yes, maybe there is. If I'm going to actually respect the guys who are out here doing this like that, then there must be some value in it. Uh This is part of the conversation and part of the setting that the Westerners miss out on. They cannot see the fruits of the aesthetic life because they've never been to an aesthetic. They've never seen one. They've never Mm -hmm. been around them. All we have is storytellers told by Western meditation teachers who may or may have not spent much time around any aesthetics. They don't have the salmon in around. Um... Normally, Western mentality has to do that. You have to be employed whether you like it or not. Uh And we don't really have that freedom. And so we don't understand that freedom. But here the king is beginning to understand that, yes, there is clearly there is advantage. And not only that, but the other people in that uh, part of the world, at least, in that area, know that uh-huh. and are willing to take care of these guys. That's very interesting because we don't... Uh, that is actually the tradition that Christianity in the West grows out of, but it's now become quite commercialized in the sense of they give the, the preacher a house and they... Yeah. Um, they give food in cans, uh, canned goods uh, um, uh, gathering that they do and things like this. Um, because uh, in the really, really old days, um, the church property didn't belong 
to the priest. That was the whole idea of celibacy that started about the 11th century. Right. Was because if a if a um, a well-known uh, head priest or head monk of a fairly large town church or a cathedral dies, then it would make sense, even if it has no paperwork or what limited paperwork they would have back then is irrelevant. Who takes over is the guy who's was my son who's been here at my right hand side this whole time. There's literally that whole idea of a prince. But if you could say, oh no, now the priests have to be celibate, then they're not going to be able to uh, have any heritage of church property. Yep. So always then when the, when the uh, old priest dies, the church has 100% full control over that property. Mm-hmm. That's the reason for the celibacy in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. But here, you can recognize that it is actually a kind of a freedom yep. for these guys to not have to bother with taking care of a family. Yep. That it, the lame people, they gain some joy, some joy from taking care of their family. Here, we have the joy of not having to take care of a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he says, this is the fruit of the aesthetic life, this apparent right here, which I point out to you. So that's the first one, just being able to get away from it all. Even, yeah. a, even a manservant who was working for the king, the king will let him go. Very interesting, because our culture is not like that today. <laughs> yep, exactly. But, sir, can you point out another fruit of the aesthetic life that is likewise apparent in this present life? Okay. I can, great king. Well, then, ask this in return and answer as you like. What do you think? Suppose a person who was a farmer, householder, a hard worker or someone who builds up their capital and they think the same thing that your bond servant thought. Uh, for this king agenda uh, is a human being and I have to give all of this tax to him. So now instead of being in service to the king, they're still in service to the king because they're, they have to pay taxes. Yep. And so they go through that same rigmarole about, well, I'm a farmer. Why don't I go off and do something good for my life? Yep. Why don't I shave off my head, hair and beard and dress in arca robes and go for Same thing. At the same time, they give up large and small fortunes, large or small family circles. They shave off their hair and beard and dress in robes and go forth from the lay life to the homelessness. Now, one of the things that we have in our culture is uh, parental responsibility is yep. a big, heavy thing. In the time of the Buddha, it was clearly not that case. Yep. That is actually the householder or the daddy who gives up the larger, small fortune, but he gives it to his family, and he lets that family take care of it. The same thing happened, by the way, with the Buddha, that it was his wife 
who had just either given birth or was about to give birth at the time of, his, of uh, Rahula's birth, that's when the Buddha left. We've already talked about that it wasn't because of old age, sickness, death, and a, and a monk that he saw, but it was rather because of um, political shenanigans over water rights. Mm. And that everybody in the household knew that he was going, but <clears throat> he left when his wife was asleep because he knew that she would be the one who would be the most upset. Uh -huh. And in fact, her life is quite interesting. If you look at hers, cause uh, she actually, even though she was angry at her husband, she took on and started living just like he did. Uh -huh. And when he came back after he became um, uh, free and actually kind of well-known, when he returned, to the kingship, his wife wasn't there. She was off in seclusion someplace. <laughs> but when he went to see her, she said to her son, go get your heritage. Now, she was actually acting angry like that because, in fact, her family was quite wealthy. Right. On, on her own right. She would have been taken care of by Sudama if... Uh, Wait a minute, Sudama's her father's name. Uh, I forgot the Buddha's father's name for the moment. Anyway, her, he would have taken care of her as uh, the wife of the, of the prince anyway. But she went back to her own palace mm -hmm. because they were always also quite wealthy. Yeah. But she was angry when she saw him coming, and that's why she sent the, the boy out saying, go get your inheritance. She's all about the money, you know. Uh -huh. That was the wrong thing to say. You know why? Why? Because he did. He did give the boy his heritage. He told him. He put him in bowl and robe and took him and left with him and took him to become a monk. So he mm. did, in fact, the boy did get his heritage, but it was a much better heritage. Okay. So, um, the family structures and family uh, differences um, were there because I think that they were doing things at a more natural level to where nowadays we do things more of a legal level, that there has been so many bad actors over so much time that we have had to put in a lot of laws, rules, and things like that, and now the laws have taken over. Yep. Right? Guess what? That happened to the Sangha also. Oh, is it? Late, late in life, one of the senior elder monks came to the Buddha in one of the suttas and says, in the early days, there were many, many nobles and very few rules. And now there are many, many rules and there are few nobles. Oh, yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah, and the Buddha says, you're right. And that's why the Buddha says, you guys, you can finish these rules off. When, he, when it was time for him to go, he says, you choose what rules are important and keep those and throw out all the rest. And that was what actually became the issue of the second Sangha uh, uh, meeting, the world um, uh, 
<clears throat> uh, uh, Shanga uh, meeting, he, mm-hmm. they couldn't agree. And so they decided to keep them all. I think that's been very detrimental because a lot of the rules of the Patty Morgan don't apply. But ownership of property is one that I think would, been, would have been quite early, that they do, in fact, give up the money. They give it to their families. They give the large or small fortune. You don't need to carry a fortune around if you're wandering around in the woods. Yep. The best thing you could do would be to bury it. And then mm-hmm. you'd be depriving of your family of it. Mm-hmm. So even the land, uh, even the uh, the householders, the ones who have money, they also would have gotten respect from the king, even though now, instead of getting uh, just a day's service, now they get their uh, their taxation from this guy. So he's a fairly big donor, but even then, uh, when he goes out, um, uh, the king would say, no, sir, brother, I would bow to him, raise in, uh, rise in his presence, offer him a seat, invite uh, them to accept robes and alms and lodging and supplies for the sick. I'd arrange for their lawful guardian, guarding and protection. Ah, so... Now, he could see two reasons. One is to get away from it all if you were, in fact, in bondage. Mm-hmm. If you're a slave, run away and go live in the woods. But now, at the opposite end of the scale, the householder, the big dude, the slaver, okay, the plantation owner, he takes a hike and leaves mm-hmm. his plantation with all the servants and all of his property, uh, the farm, the whole thing. And and uh, uh, and he goes out too. And the king says, "Yeah, okay. So now we're talking about if we've got if we've covered both ends of the of the thing, that would mean probably everybody would fit in there." Mm-hmm. Clearly, sir, this is the second fruit of the aesthetic life that is apparent in this present life, which I point out to you. And then he goes on, but sir, can you point out the fruit of the aesthetic life that is apparent in this present life, which is better and finer than just being able to get away from it all? Well, then listen and pay close attention and I will speak. Yes, replied the king. The Buddha says, consider when I realized one rises in the world perfect Perfected, fully awakened Buddha, accomplished in knowledge and conduct, holy knower of the world, supreme guide for those who wish to attain, teacher of gods and humans, awakened blessings. Wait a minute. This sounds so familiar, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Maharaja, Tafago, Loke, Upajati, Araham, Samma, Sambuto, Vicha, Charana, Sampo, Sukato, Lo, Gavidu, right there it is, Anutaro, Purisadama, Sarati, Sata, Deva, Manu, Sanambuto, Bhagava. All right, so now the Buddha is putting on him the same phrase that uh, Jatika had done earlier in the evening 
um, that he has realized with his own insight this world with its gods. Now, that's very interesting. This world with its gods and Maras and Brahmins. In other words, the gods may not also be in another world. And in fact, the gods here, if you look at the Pali, you'll recognize, wait a minute, they're not talking about gods at all. They're talking about high-class people. Mm-hmm. Just like the, uh, the king himself is called uh, a deva. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to see where it is. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the world including the devas, including the Mara devas. Right. Sabi become, uh, uh, no, sa, excuse me, Sadeva come, right, mm-hmm. including the Davis. So, Lokam, this world, including the Davis. Davis here may not be magical gods the way that we almost always translate. You can see the Christian influence in this. Again, um, <clears throat> He teaches Dhamma that is, ah, wait a minute, here's that phrase again. He teaches the Dhamma that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, meaningful and well-phrased, as he prevails a spiritual practice that is entirely full and pure. Ah, we know other sources. This is in the Dhammapada. It's also in the Majjhima So you can say that they lifted this. And this is a well-known point about the teachings of the Buddha. It's good in the beginning. And yet we see a lot of people struggling in their meditation. If they are, then that means they're not practicing correctly. Because if they're practicing correctly, they get benefit immediately out of it. It's good in the beginning. Beginning. It's always good to keep pointing that out, keep picking on it. (laughs) And so they pop that right here in there. He teaches Gama that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, meaningful and well-phrased, and he reveals a spiritual practice that's entirely full and pure. So he actually reveals means he's pointing out this is how we live. And in fact, if the people of the population of that community had not been able to see this revealed spiritual practice, they would not be willing to give alms and even postcards for them. A householder hears that teaching, or a householder's child, or someone born in some clan, they gain faith in uh, the realized one. Okay, let's see what that is. Uh, Okay, Saddam is the word here, believing, faith, devoted. Uh Ah, so I would say in this case that this would be better translated as confidence. He gains confidence in the realized one. This is not faith the way that we think of it in the English language. Perhaps yeah. we could use the word faith in the correct way in, in regard, and then it would be right. But normally faith means without any evidence. Uh-huh. 
And yet we just saw that they have actually revealed their spiritual practice that is entirely pure. Because of that, the householder's son or someone born in a clan will in fact um, <clears throat> take uh, that as confidence of obvious here and now you can see it. It's not to be taken on faith. Those guys are not going to go to the woods on their own, having not ever seen any Simona. Yep. Right? They've got to go see the Simona and see how they live, and then they will gain confidence that I, too, can go live like that. But one thing that I would like to back up to, and that is that I see the word uh, rebirth in that, and um, I don't think that it's necessary. I don't think it is, uh, or someone born in a clan. Master of the house of the in the po in the poly dictionary it says one or two or several or certain one another together okay so someone yeah. reborn in a clan would be better just say or some clansman mm -hmm. that's the way so we're seeing a lot of magic being put into the english part of the sutta that's not even there in the uh, poly mm -hmm. and over and over we see extra little bits of magic added in. So, uh, when they do gain confidence in seeing a realized one and reflect, living in a house is cramped and dirty, but the life of one gone forth is wide open. Now, a lot of people say, oh, well, my house is not cramped and dirty. I've got a really nice house. <laughs> But what they're actually talking about is cramped and dirty is even a really nice house needs repairs. It needs cleaning. It needs taken care of. Why does it need uh, cleaning? It's because it's dirty. You just thought so. But when you hear somebody talking about it, you say, oh, well, my house is not dirty. Yes, it is. Or you wouldn't even bother to own a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But who goes about... <clears throat> Uh, doing a whole lot of cleaning in the woods. Mm -hmm. We just kind of let things get dirty. That's the, the natural part of being out in the woods is things are dirty and that's okay. The more you have, the more you have to take care of. <laughs> the more you have, the more there is to take care of, and that's why it would be cramped. Yep. Another way that it could be cramped is, is that no matter how big the house is, 300 square feet, it's not big enough, I need 6. Mm -hmm. Not big enough, I need 12. Not big enough, I need 2,400 square feet. Now that's a decent sized house, but for a lot of people, nah, I, that's cramped. A four-bedroom mansion is too small. I need a ten-bedroom mansion, and we just get more, in, and now we find even the White House is cramped. <laughs> <laughs> So, that's the feature that we're talking about here, is, is that actually living in a house is cramped and dirty. We have to take care of the thing. Yep. And we're wanting more all the time. 
And it is not easy for someone living in a house uh, to lead the spiritual life utterly pure. In other words, yes, you can, but most people think that it's more difficult, that it's actually easier if you could, in fact, get away from it all. The problem is we don't have very many places well known that we can actually just get away from it all. Mm. Generally, what we find is retreat centers that cost more than staying at home. <laughs> yeah. And so it becomes not an option. And so we're, we've limited ourselves in the West uh, because we we don't have this mental image of getting away from it all. And in fact, you could think about it that the problem Possibly the one who is closest to that would be the hiker or the backpacker or the one who goes camping. Mm -hmm. That he'll park his car after he takes it with some of the gear. He'll put that gear on and he'll go off and stay way out in the wilderness someplace with the stuff that he brought with him. But he's got to come back because mm -hmm. the only stuff that he's got that he can live with is the stuff he brought. Yep. Okay, that we can, and it's, it's possible, but it's not very handy to actually live completely native. Yep. That, uh, um, that in the time of the Buddha, that you could say that so someone could, in fact, come back down to the community to get some things and then go back off into the wilderness. And, and we do have a few like that, possibly a dozen or so in every country. But then they're not well known. These are the guys, so the situation was such. We have to understand that there was a situation there that allowed people to do this, and even the king would say that it was a good thing for my slave to pack up his belongings and move into the woods because there's something more valuable there. Okay, at some... At some time, they gave up the larger small fortune, and uh, they shaved off their head and beard, and they go forth from the lay life. Once they have gone forth, they live restrained. There again is that word restraint. They live restrained in the monastic code, cutting themselves or conducting themselves well and seeking alms in suitable places, Seeing danger in the slightest fault, they keep the rules that they've undertaken. They act skillfully in body and speech, and they're purified in livelihood and accomplished in ethical conduct. They guard the sense doors, have mindfulness, and situational awareness, as he's talking about it, mm. and are content. Ah! Not well, one-pointedness. Right. And so what we're seeing here that it's not actually the going out into the woods because somebody can go camping in the woods. But he is um, might not be uh, acting skillfully. That's the thing that once we go in there and we're restrained with the monastic code, uh, they guard the sense doors. What does the guard the sense doors mean? It basically Done. means I'm not going to get caught up with something yep. I see. That I'm going to guard that, and I can see it, but I'm not going to get into it. All right, so what we're saying here now is, is that once someone goes forth, we can begin to practice in a way that's hard to do in, in the lay life. 
because the house is already cramped and we have to take care of it. And much of the time taking care of the house means we've got to go outside to earn money to pay for the, the lodging that we have. To where if we're staying in the woods, we don't have that issue. And so we can spend more, more of our time not in working, but in restraining our senses and, and become restrained in the monastic code. But in order to do that, we need to be around some of these guys that can do that. That the guy who gets his backpack on and heads off to the woods all by himself, he doesn't have a clue about what to do with himself mm -hmm. after he's out there. Then, in fact, when he does run out of supplies, or maybe even before he runs out of supplies, he's going to come running back to town because he doesn't know how to really enjoy himself that much out in yep. the wilderness. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And the whole quality here is this situational awareness and contentment. That we become quite content with life. Very hard to be contented with a house you've got to keep up. Yep. It gets dirty and it's confined. It's confined even with the mortgage payment or the rent. It's always on your mind. It's a lot of confinement there that we don't have. And so we can find that contentment. So now, um, in that restraint, we're actually doing a redo here when we talk about ethics. And so the next point of it, we can say, here's that word, sila. Sila, as opposed to salah. The A has not got the mark on it, the I does here. Mm -hmm. The wrong word, sila. Okay, so sila is translated as ethics. And I guess we can sort of let it be there. Um, We can also just look at it as behavior in general. Mm -hmm. And how great king is a mendicant accomplished in Sila. Sila, actually the Pali is Sila Sampagno Hoti. Sila Sampagno. And you can see the word that we're using accomplished is actually Panya or Panyo, which is actually wisdom. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so sila sampanyo means to observe the sila with wisdom, not because we were told to. Hmm. Yeah. And a lot of this really intricate poly, if we look at it, we can get a whole new perspective over things rather than Oh, Sila, oh, you've got to behave yourself. Why? Because yeah. I told you, you got to behave yourself. So you got to behave yourself. But here we're actually talking about that they behave themselves because they can see through wisdom that that kind of restraint leads to contentment. Mm -hmm. So, reading on is when a mendicant gives up killing living creatures, renouncing the rod and the sword, they're uh, scrupulous and kind, living off, uh, living full of compassion for all living beings. Okay, so actually, here's what is referred to as the first precept: But at least they're going into it in a little bit more detail. 
The next one is atenodana. They give up taking things. In fact, you can see the word atenodana is the third one, mm-hmm. uh, third word in there. Okay. Adenadatam is theft. Paya atenodana. Now, in fact, if you look a little bit deeper into that word, it talks about it in the sense of taking things that are not given. All right. So even the restraint of the monks is with when they're out in public. That if they see something on the road, they are supposed to leave it. Mm-hmm. Because they cannot pick it up and take it because it wasn't given to them. Mm-hmm. That <laughs> there is a story. I think it's so funny. And that is, is that there was an old discarded pair of jeans All right. that had holes in them and some blood stains and mud stains. And this pair of jeans or these jeans were laying in the road. And this happened in Thailand just a few years ago. And that this very famous monk that this book is about, um, when, they're, when he's walking down the road with these um, other monks, he runs across this pair of jeans on the road that's fairly close to an alley. And so this old monk, he doesn't pick up the jeans. What he does is he kicks them. And he kicks them in the direction of the alleyway. And after kicking them three or four times, he's able to kick the, uh, the jeans all the way into the alley. Mm-hmm. And then he turns to one of the younger monks and he says, hand that to me. <laughs> that means that that old monk is going exactly by the letter of the law, but he's breaking the spirit of the law. <laughs> yep. <laughs> now, the other side of that is that if you find something of value laying in the watch someplace, more than likely someone will come looking for it in the watch. And so mm-hmm. it should be handed over to the treasurer or to someone put into the storage area, something like that. So if it's in the white, you pick it up and you put it in storage. If it's out on the street, you leave it on the street because it's not given to you. It's not anything about finders, keepers, losers, weepers, unless you want to try to twist the wall like this. And so that's Uh what they mean by by given. Okay, so the younger monk gave him (laughs) that rag. Technically, he didn't break any rules. The is, is that he had a yarn bag made out of jeans, and it was uh, an okay yarn bag. What's a yarn bag? Uh, the yarn bag is it's a piece, two pieces of cloth about this big, sewn together with a large loop over the top, and that the monks will carry it on their arm when they're out in public. That's the bag that the monk carries. It's called a yarn. Okay. All right, and that's what he was done with those those jeans, because the yam can be of any color. There's no distinction about the color of the yam. Right. That in fact, I've got a blue one in the house here that I got as a monk when I was at the uh, um, uh, this <laughs> the ceremony to um, ordain a, a temple. Uh huh. Okay, so. Um, So what they're saying is, is that these precepts 
of not giving and not stealing is something that they take on as a practice that uh, is protecting their behavior, but they're also doing it through wisdom, not because they were given this. They're not okay. in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. Now the next one is is that they give up unchastity as they they are celibate. Well, though they're not celibate, the word in the Pali is abramacharya, and it, it means basically living above it all, living like a god or living above, which means that we do not have to have the family attachment to it. You see, back in the old days, sex and family were much more closely connected together. Nowadays, we yep. can have um, recreational sex. Mm. But um, we can go into all the details that have a lot to do with STDs and why it's important to have a virgin and ownership and marriage and all of that kind of stuff is really what the issue is. Uh -huh. And so in order to be free from all of the encumbrances, it's better uh, to just avoid the situation and live apart, to live alone. Yep. So that's what this is talking about. But when Westerners will translate it, they start using words like celibacy, which is not, um, that's, that's like doing without something that's good rather than seeing the problems with it and dispensing with it. Mm. Yeah. All right. Uh, so this also pertains to ethics. They give up lying. They speak the truth. They stick to the truth. They're honest and trustworthy, and they don't trick the world with words. Well, now, in fact, uh, the king had just gone to some of these guys that were pretty tricky with their words. Mm -hmm. And so this is also, um, in, in, the, in the Pali, this is also called the Musawada. Musawada we Ramani Sakabadam Samati Ami. And there you look here in the Pali, and that's the first word we have, is Musawadam. Musawadam Paya uh, Musawada. Okay, this is the whole thing about speaking the truth and not and not telling falsehoods. This is especially true when working with the Dhamma. That we mm -hmm. have to make sure that what we're teaching and uh, is is correct. So for me, I want to know the source. If I teach something in the uh, of the Dhamma, I want to remember or at least find out where I got that. Yep. One of the questions that I had for a long time was, where did Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa get the quality of mindfulness at the point of contact? Because that's a significant point about Patita Samupada. It's got to be in the suttas about Samupada, uh, Patita Samupada someplace. Guess what? It is. <laughs> I finally found it. Where is it? It's in Dinganakaya number 15. Okay. We're just talking about mindfulness at the point of contact. Okay, so um, that mindfulness of the point of contact here, if we've got the reference, then it's a good teaching. But if I don't know where it come from, I made it up, maybe. Uh -huh. Yeah. 
And so we want to make sure that what we're speaking is honest and, and trustworthy. That if I say something of the Dhamma, you should be able to go find it someplace in the Sutta, and I might, in fact, give you the reference of where to go look for it. <laughs> so this is what, and, and, and because of that, one gains faith, if you were, or confidence that the speaker is actually giving you good stuff because you can't find any holes in it. There's not pack of lies. Yep. That is not stupid or uh, um, off base or whatever, that it's spot on because that's the intention of the way that, that we speak. This is part of the ethical way of living. But it's also very wise. I'm not doing it because I learned it as a rule someplace. I learned this in Christianity when I was a child, and I continued to lie for my whole life. So knowing what the rules are doesn't help. It's when the wisdom comes in, the, the sila panya. Or, or in the, another way of looking at it, I like the phrase sitapanya, to remember to be wise. Uh. And then you can have silapanya wise behavior you can remember all right so the next item on that list of speech is they give up divisive speech they don't repeat in this place what they heard in another place so as divide people against each other this is their, the issue of gossip especially malicious gossip yep uh, that way we can live in and uh, and delighting in harmony but the whole western culture is based upon climbing up, taking advantage, backbiting, backstabbing, talking down about those guys in order to build myself up is very much a part of our Western culture. And so it takes a bit of wisdom to recognize we don't have to speak that way. Mm -hmm. That we can give up divisive speech. That we can allow other, and here's the point, we can allow other meditation teachers to teach wrongly. But that's uh -huh. their business and their students' business. It's not my business. Why should I get all hot and bothered because he's doing something differently than I do? If I listen carefully, he might, in fact, be right about something. Yep. Mm. Uh, and so we don't uh, work with division. We stay in harmony. Also, harsh speech. Now, this is an interesting one. They give up harsh speech. They speak in a way that is mellow, pleasing to the ear, loving, giving of the heart, polite, likable, and agreeable to people. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was not always likable and agreeable to people. Oh, is it? Mm, no, sometimes he would use pretty low-class language. But it was low class, not necessarily harsh. Right. When we use the word harsh and we're talking about really harsh language here, we're talking about calling people names, using angry language, uh, using low class language, uh, uh, F you, that kind of stuff. But we can also use a wide variety of language to make a point. And that the words themselves may be, um, let us say, noteworthy. Mm -hmm. But because they make a point, it wouldn't be considered harsh speech. It would be considered 
low-class streets. So it's the intention behind it all. It's always the intention behind it. Mm -hmm. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, for instance, um, he actually spoke in a fairly low-class southern dialect. And yet when people read his literature, they, it always sounds uh, high-class, erudite, fancy language and all of that. But that's coming from the translators, mm -hmm. who are all Westerners, all uh, university-educated. All of them um, are uh, wanting to make sure that they get the translation right. But in doing so, they get the translation right, but they get the flavor wrong. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, one of the words that he used often was the word goo. And the word right. goo is a, is a personal pronoun for me. Now, in normal language, you'll use um, pan or chan. Right. But when Word, use the word goo, we often use it in the sense of really being pissed off, really angry, really low-class word. Right. Okay. I think that in English we use uh, the word you like that. We can use the word you in a hundred different ways, but we can use it in a really low-class way. <laughs> yeah. You! <laughs> is an example. Okay, so harsh language then has to do with more of the tone than the actual words. But for some reason in English, we have a whole long list of, uh, of words that are harsh just because it's the word themselves. I think, in fact, that George Garland has a, um, a comedy routine that's very funny about all the words that you can't say. Oh, is it? Yeah, it makes it kind of a poem. It goes something like... Um, Fuck, shit, kick, you know, just go dot, 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 like that down to the damn uh, hell. All of these words that you're not supposed to use. Okay. That's not what we mean by harsh speech. Harsh speech is the way it's directed towards someone, and we often use low-class speech as harsh speech. And so there is that connection there. But we can use low-class language and be joking. Yep. In fact, the, uh, the, the fact that we're using low-class language is what makes it humorous. It mm -hmm. makes the point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so we can say something like, well, fuck that shit, and, and it's all very funny. Very low-class language, but it's not harsh at all. Mm -hmm. The next one is that they give up talking nonsense, and we have a lot of nonsensical talk. In fact, a lot of yeah, the nonsense... Of nonsense. Yeah, there's a lot of nonsense, and uh, if you don't believe me, turn on CNN or Fox News. Oh, I, I imagine read The Guardian, and you can read a whole lot of nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, the words are timely, true, and meaningful, in line with the teachings and training. So basically what they're talking about here is that as we go along, we begin to talk more and more Dhamma and not talk about other things because it's mm -hmm. all a bunch of nonsense. Yep. Not helpful. And so this is what the, the training in ethics. But now it goes a little deeper. In fact, this whole section we can see was a cut and paste job. They didn't just cut and paste what's useful for the king. They went and cut and pasted a whole bunch of other stuff. 
but also we notice this that this other stuff that we're about to go through i don't think and we may find it in a moment about alcohol because that's mm-hmm. one of the uh the precepts of sura maria macha pamatadana we ramani sakabadam samatiani as if it was a huge deal and yet using alcohol is a quite minor offense in the patty mark and that in some cases alcohol is used for medical purposes yep the problem is not using alcohol the problem is becoming heedless getting drunk not uh-huh. being able to to manage but if you'll notice that's not here yeah that's true it's not here but it does go into other things for instance that they refrain from injuring plants and seeds but this is a benefit what does a farmer do he does nothing else but injure plants yep. and keep seeds which means that now the monks are not going to be farmers they don't have to work this is one of the positive ethic points not telling a lie and being honest that's got its value but now we don't have to dig in the dirt and mm-hmm. we don't have to plant seeds we don't have to do construction the the in fact the wilderness or the jungle or the forest itself is a good enough accommodation or a hut is all we need um the next one is they eat one part of the day abstaining from eating at night and food in the wrong time okay so again we know that this is a very very late one or in fact this is really late cuz it's centuries after the buddha died and by then they did have the abstaining but not from eating look at the word vekalabhojana and it is actually the abstaining from taking food mm. not eating it this is all about when do monks go out to eat or go out on bendabat to get food not what time they eat it that in fact there is an actual sutta about a monk who got confused about that and went to the buddha and finally the buddha straightened him out is he said no you can eat your food any time that you want to you just can't store it up we don't keep it overnight mm. why do we not keep it overnight is because then the animals will break in and if you're in the forest if you've got food you're going to invite animals know what you want to do if you've got any uneaten food at uh, at night if you're going to sleep is to disperse it to throw it out to put it out there for the animals far away from where you are because yep. they will come from the ants among other things and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and you do not want your bed full of ants so you do not put your food in your bed <laughs> and that's an old thing and we can still see the remnants of that that we have food for a room a kitchen and the people don't sleep in the kitchen mhm mhm and so this is this is an idea then that um that many people have that it has to do with that abstaining from eating in the evenings and night no it's abstaining from going out to get food at the wrong time 
The next one is um, Nacha Gita Vatidabi Sukadasana. Okay. Nacha Gita Vatidabi Sukadasana. Yeah, I got it. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's it. Nacha Gita Vatidabi Sukadasana Padito Ratohoti, which means actually. Um, Basically, what we're talking about here is that the kind of situation is, is that the monks would have to go into the village at night in order to go see dancing and singing and music and shows. Mm-hmm. And it's also, if you're going to be um, making music and whatnot, you would have to have musical instruments, and since the monks are not carrying anything around. But that's different than, uh, and we would have to look at, in English, the division between is a poet, a singer. In other words, if I'm reciting a poem for your entertainment, or I sing that same poem to music, what is there any real difference? There's not in the poly. Then in Pali, in fact, that word Gita, you can see Nacha, which is, in fact, dancing. Mm-hmm. Gita, that's the word for singing. Uh, singing, but it's also the word for poetry. Okay. Except that poetry is well, is known well commonly. In fact, there's actually uh, whole works called... Uh, the Terry Gita and the Terra oh, Gita, yeah. Yeah. right? Which is the poetry, and you read that, or you look in the Sutta Nipata, and it's in blank verse. Yep. A lot of the suttas are in blank verse. It's quite poetic. So this does not have to do then with that the monks cannot recite the Dhamma. In fact, that part that we've been over the poor is quite musical. Itipiso, Bhagawa, Raha, Sama, Sambuto. You can hear the rhythm in it. It's got a mm-hmm. rhythm. It's got a. Okay. So um, that's not the issue. The issue here is going out and becoming part of the crowd in order to have the entertainment. No, they stay away from it. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue of Gita is, is quite interesting. Because in, in Thailand, they have the idea, that the lay people, that any kind of dancing is wrong. Therefore, any kind of movement is wrong. And yet within the monkhood, I know that a lot of them practice yoga and mm-hmm. some practice Tai Chi. And in fact, mm-hmm. Tai Chi um, in Bangkok and in other cities in Thailand, they do it exactly the way that they do it in China. Early early in the morning at about sunrise, thousands of people on some mornings and hundreds on slight mornings will go to Mm -hmm. Lumpini Park in Bangkok and they all do Tai Chi together in mass. And yet, there was a German monk at Wat and Mok who wanted to do Tai Chi and Bikubu, actually it was Achan Po, pulled him aside and says, here, I want you to go do this in this particular place. 
and he pulled him away so that no uh, of the Thai people could see him doing Tai Chi because the idea is, is that anything like Tai Chi or whatnot is considered dancing and because it's in that precept of Nachi Gita Wati Davi Supadasa Nave Ramani Sakavadam Samati, I mean, that means everything and it's overboard. Westerners get that idea also. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, I have a clear example, uh, many cases. I, I have known several monks. One of them was, oh, I was so impressed with this monk. I've forgotten his name, but um, um, he was actually in Chicago when I was in Chicago. Uh-huh. And then when I went to Watt Greensboro, I actually invited him and got him to come to Watt Greensboro. He then went with us um, to Cambodia and mm-hmm. then to Thailand, but then he stayed in Thailand. He didn't come back to the United States, and I considered that such a loss at the time. Anyway, <laughs> he did yoga, and he was really, really into it. Uh, nice Thai uh, language book was full of pictures and everything that he did yoga with. And he said, yeah, there's quite a lot of us that do it together at uh, uh, what uh, Chulapatan. Mm-hmm. But they don't let any of the uh, lay people see them doing that because the lay people would consider it um, not that. That's that interesting. interesting? Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, so the next one is um, uh, avoiding going out to shows, but doing practices within the Wat, like reciting poetry, reciting the Dhamma, uh, doing exercises, yogas, that kind of thing like that, is, is not really considered uh, part of that. But the lay people think so. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next one is Malagandana uh, Vepanadharana. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's right there. It's part of, this is just part of those precepts. Um, Amala is actually Amala. And uh, you can see Gandana, which actually is the garlands. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Amala would be beads. Gandana uh, is uh, the uh, the garlands. Then we have uh, uh, odors and senses. Um, Oh, sandalwood, very common in, in India. Many, many fragrances. Um, you can see the satyrs, in fact. They take ochre and, and put scents around the body. Um, oh, Arabs are very, very much into heavy perfume. When I was in yep. Saudi Arabia for a year, boy, you could tell when the Saudi was coming. <laughs> yep. I've noticed ah. that here as well. Okay, so fragrances make up all of that. Why? For, for one reason, that takes work to get that stuff. Yeah. And as you'll notice, I don't wear any jewelry, any makeup, any glasses, <laughs> any watches, any any garlands or necklaces or anything like that. It's because of this uh, 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 point here of uh, Malagandana, Vipanadharana. Um, Gosh, look at that word. That word is so long that it's it fills so up long. half the line. <laughs> they could have put a, a pause in there someplace, I'm sure. They didn't have to run it all together like that because then the, the dictionary just gives up on it. Okay. 
Uh, and then the next one is Usacharana Mahacharana, which means not high in the sense of how high off the floor, but rather high in the sense of high class. And that it's true that, in fact, um, monks do a lot of travel. But their accommodations are always easy to manage. All we need is a spot on the floor, or if we're really lucky, we get a, an empty room with, with the whole floor. Or maybe a, a room that there's no other humans in it, but it may be a storeroom, or it may be uh, a shrine room, or whatever. But you got a floor. That's all that we need. We don't need uh, heavy bedding. Uh, and we should also look at that from the sense of um, retreats to let the students just lay on the floor. When we go into bedding, that's in fact the bedding is the whole point that makes it into a bed and breakfast or a retreat place with, you know, accommodations. And always we think of accommodations as having beds. So even the kind of simple beds that you would have in a hotel would still be considered luxury because we don't mm -hmm. need those things. That we can, but um, it's a matter of getting used to. If we've been sleeping in a very, very soft bed, then it takes a while to learn to get used to, especially if people sleep in a, in a bed and then sleep on the floor the way that they've been sleeping in the bed. And they'll have trouble. One yep. is backache. Yep. Another one is your tailbone will start to hurt. I bet. You actually have to learn to sleep on your side in order to manage sleeping on hard surfaces. So do they get um, a pillow? Any kind well, of... there's many different kinds of pillows. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasu uh, liked the idea of a wooden pillow because... The ants can't eat it. And so you can leave the pillows in the, uh, in the cooties, and the uh -huh. ants won't eat it. If you put a kapok pillow or a cotton pillow in the cootie and somebody moves out, the next day the ants are going to have that thing half eaten. Oh, or wow. worse, you go and you pick it up and you lay down on your head and you find out that it's completely infested with ants. <laughs> And so that's why of the idea of the wooden pillow. But other than that, uh, kapok is actually used quite a lot in the watch, especially in the in the town watch. But then there's the other option, and that is the big heavy sangati robe that the monks carry when they're on tudan, because that's actually most of their camping equipment is in that big heavy double robe. Uh -huh. There's two of them, the one that we wear normally, and then the ceremonial robe that you'll see over the shoulder often, yep. and that's many times a double robe. It sometimes is a single robe, and sometimes it's a double. If it's a double robe, then it can be really used for camping. The uh -huh. double robe can be used as a shelter in the rain, it can be used as a cover in the cold, it can be used as a pillow when packed up rightly and you, you lay like that on it and so uh, uh, that's the thing or you can use your arm or find something else to rest your head on uh -huh. but a rock I don't recommend a rock <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Gives you dreams, so they say in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, like, do you get pins and needles quite a bit when you sleep on the floor? That's why we want to sleep on the side. Okay, you don't, so you don't get that that way? Don't get the, uh, the pins and needles so much or the, uh, the sleepiness. And if you do, you can just roll over to the other side. Right. Which is okay. Now, the next one is another issue of translation. And that is receiving gold and money. Actually, if you look at the Pali, it says Jatarupa Rajata. Okay, Pahatagana. That Jata Rupa and Rajata is actually gold. Now, they did not have gold coins. This is one of the things that, that we've known about archaeology is when they're digging things up from way back when, they never find any gold or silver coins. They find copper, copper and tin, bronze, and even wooden coins. Right. But gold and silver were considered for the king. That's why it's called Rajata. It's king's gold. I was wondering that. Yeah. Now, in Thailand, in the Thai language, they have the same word for gold, tong, which okay. is also the same word for belly. So a jep tong means that your belly hurts, not your gold hurts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, you can see the, the, the word gold is um, used in the sense of rajata, which rajata means you're going to have gold bullion, not jewelry. But we're not going to be wearing jewelry anyway. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the problems that I see with many Buddhists is, is that they're not taking the middle path with this. They're taking the hardcore is as though that means any money, even a penny. And yet we have ample evidence in the suttas that um, actual money that the monk is going to have because of gifts or whatever should actually be kept with a steward. Mm -hmm. And that uh, anthropo uh, Anthropedica was one who was often would be the steward in the sense that the monk would say, oh, I need a new razor. My old one is broken. Another item would be uh, the water purifier. They actually... When I was ordained, I got a kit, and one of these kits was this really strange-looking cup. Right. What I come to find out about it is, is that the uh, the top part, the part, the lip that you would expect, like on a on a cup like this, is not where you drink from. That's the where you put the cloth for the purification, and then okay. the other side of the cup you suck on it. So as you pour the water into it, it becomes purified through uh, several layers of cloth. Oh. So those are the kinds of things that the item would be that uh, if that, because they were made out of clay or something. And uh, so that would be an item that the monk could uh, ask Anthrop uh, Anthropedica to go purchase from him. Mm -hmm. uh, Tanisaro has uh, put out quite a lot of stuff about that in the sense of he's justifying that a monk in Thailand or in the United States is justified in having a bank account mm -hmm. because that bank account is fulfilling the job of um, what anthrop 
Anthropitica was doing for the monks in the time of the Buddha. Mm-hmm. That the check that you would write for the bank is the same thing as the note that the buck would write to Anthropitica and someone yep. would take it to him. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and so, um, wooden coins, small change, little things like that, there's no problem with it. The problem is when it's wealth. Mm. Okay. Now, several years ago, it made it into the Western newspapers as well as Thai newspapers that a monk had died, and when they went into his room, into his cootie, the place was absolutely full of money. He had it neatly stacked. He was stacking it up and stacking it up and stacking it up, and also big plastic bags of coins on the floor. Basically, by going on Dundabad in Bangkok from time to time, in fact, the, uh, what the, the thing that's common is, is that if someone is 42 years old today or 47 years old today, he will take out a 47 baht and put it into a plastic bag and make 47 of these plastic bags and give one plastic bag to each monk as he's going uh, around giving uh, on Dundabai. Oh. And each bag has 47 baht in it. Okay, this is uh, <laughs> part of the superstition. So monks do have opportunities for small amounts of money. Yep. The next thing, in Bangkok, they uh, monks are allowed to travel on public transportation at half cost, half price. Okay. Even Bangkok Airlines allows monks to travel all over the world at half price because they're following along with the, the law of the land. When, we, when I would get a monk's ticket recently on uh, the, the ferry, the monk would pay half price. In fact, I would tell them that I'm, I, I want two adults and one for a monk. Mm-hmm. And they would then almost always ask you a half price like a child's ticket or whatever like that. So here's the question. If monks are forbidden in the Paddy Monk to, talk, to use any money at all, why would a Buddhist country that is advertising and known to be Buddhist, would they charge money for their transportation when they're already making a point of giving the monks half price? Why didn't they just make it free for the monks? Exactly. Precisely. It's because it's okay for monks to have money. Back to the guy who was in that room completely full of money. Guess what? The biggest bill in all of this big pile of money in there was 20 baht. (laughs) The 20 baht bill is the smallest bill that's a bill in Thai money, and it's worth about 40 cents. (laughs) And he had a whole room full of the stuff. But he didn't amount to a whole lot of cash. I mean, it was not a fortune. Uh. It was actually just a bunch of paper and the monk didn't have much use for. And so it winds up being a story of beauty. But in the Western press, it makes him look like a criminal. Uh. And so here in the sutta, it's talking about gold and silver as bullion, and the translator translates that into money. Uh-huh. Mm. 
That's why there's so many problems. There's so many mistakes in it because uh, the original translators were then tra- were copied. They did most of the work and they made a lot of mistakes. And so now a lot of the mistakes are continuing to be copied. Mm. The next, raw grains and raw meat. Why? Because the monks don't cook. If you want to feed the monks, give them something that they can eat. Don't give them something that they can't eat. Uh. Okay. Also, women and girls. But male and female bond servants, goats, sheep, chickens, pigs, fields of land, elephants, cows, horses, mares, they refrain from running errands. Well, that's the next one. Okay. So basically what he's saying is this group of farm animals or others is just a burden to take care of. Uh Don't bother with having any of that stuff. If you've got it, that's just work to do. A lot of people will say, oh, women and girls, hmm, I know why the Buddha doesn't want them to have any women and girls. And then they get the whole idea it's all about sex. No, it's all about taking care of. It's all about um, uh, having to um, do things that we don't have to do Uh because we don't own those things. That's, in fact, what he's actually talking about. Um, They receive, they avoid receiving gold and grain and meat and women and girls and male and female bondservants and goats and sheep and chicken and pigs and elephant and cows and horses and mares and fields of land. Why? Because every one of those things is a bondage, a burden. Mm-hmm. And now here's one that's very interesting. This one I didn't understand, but I, uh, I, I came to understand, and that is monks don't run errands. And I have even recently saying, oh, will you, um, I'm talking to a monk now, will you tell Achan Po that I'd like to see him? Guess what? Monk is under no obligation to pass mm-hmm. along a message. It's so why is that? Business. If I want to see Achan Po, I've got to go see Achan Po. Maybe if there's an attendant around, I should tell the attendant, but I can't just send a monk on an errand. Mm-hmm. Because they're sitting in the woods. They don't go on errands. How much freedom is that? I mean, that's what your whole job is, is literally doing your boss's errands for him. Uh, yeah. Even if it's coding. Hmm? We don't do errands. Nope. <laughs> we don't run messages. So that's a freedom as well, actually. Oh, that's the biggest freedom at all. Buying and selling, especially selling. Buying, sometimes we can't avoid it, but selling, we certainly can. Mm-hmm. Okay, why? Because if I have something I don't need, the thing to do is to give it to somebody who does. Generosity, right? But mm-hmm. if we're generous with each other, by, by and large, within the monkhoods, the monks don't buy and sell with each other. Mm-hmm. They share. They share. 
They don't keep those kind of things. And so they don't go around buying and selling. For that reason, it's kind of frowned upon for a monk to be out shopping in Bangkok. Oh, okay. They stay at the Wat. They don't go out. But if they can sneak out, especially if the young ones who are from ump country and they wind up in Bangkok, it's the big city for them like that. They go gaga. There are several places that I have seen monks. One of them is in Ban Ma. Right. Ban Ma is the area of Bangkok for electronics components. Yep. Chips and resistors and sometimes tubes and transformers and um, uh, all of that kind of stuff. <coughs> and it happens to, that Ban Ma happens to be right next door to one of the biggest training temples in Bangkok. Is down there. Is very. I mean, it's easy walking distance from Wat Po and Wat Mahatat, and uh, um, so you're likely to see the monks there. Yeah. But but one time I uh, was a monk. I was in Bangkok, and I actually, good or bad, here I am going shopping in Pantip Plaza, which is the uh, the big building that you have almost. Here's something really funny. Like Ban Ma has electronic equipment, uh, Ma Boon Krong is the place to go for cell phones. There's like a thousand mm -hmm. companies in that building, and they all have their little stall. And anything you need done with a cell phone, they can do it there, mm -hmm. including all of their soldering guns and all of that stuff. Some guys are excellent with software. Pan Tip Plus is that for computers. And so here I am in Bangkok's big computer store, which actually has hundreds of merchants and, and whatnot. And I meet another Western monk. And I go up and I start to talk to him. And he is just so shy. He is like trying to get away from me. And then I realize basically he thinks that I'm out checking on him. Why is he in Pantip Plaza? In other words, uh -huh. he's, he, he's, he's, um, he's lost in that rule. Mm -hmm. He should not be out here because monks don't go out buying and selling. Well, they don't in general. Sometimes, yep. maybe. Okay. But in general, you're not out in the, if you're out in the woods hanging out or if you're in the watch, there's no buying and selling going on there. Mm -hmm. But now we're also talking about uh, metals and weights and measures and using the kind of things in business in the sense of falsifying or telling lies, bribery, fraud, cheating, duplicity, all of that has to do with buying and selling. If you do not have any fraud or any bribery going on, that means that there's no buying and selling going on. Uh -huh. All of that has to do with the buying and selling. And so if you're out and buying and selling, that means that with the buying and selling, automatically following along with that is the falsifications of weights. Or like in Western uh, uh, stuff, um, mis misidentifying or mispackaging, not giving all the ingredients. That's one of the things uh, like that is, is false advertisement. Bribery, fraud, cheating, duplicity, uh, mutilation, murder, abduction, banditry, plundering, violence. Uh. 
These all have to do then with the buying and selling. And so if you abstain from the buying and selling, then you can abstain from all of that behavior. Okay, so now the next one is the shorter discourse on ethics is finished. And this is the middle section on ethics. Well, you'd think that they'd covered it pretty well there. <laughs> and there's a longer section as well. Yes, I know. Um, here they're just kind of repeating in the sense of engaged yep. in, inter uh, uh, in seeds. Uh, you can see basically what happened is, is that they copied something from one point and put that as the beginning section. Then they copied mm -hmm. a whole bunch of other stuff from someplace else and plopped that down here as the middle section. But you can see that mostly it's the same kind of thing yep. over again. Here they actually mentioned about storing up goods. Okay. Storing there are up, some yep. recluses and Brahmins who, while enjoying foods given in faith, still engage in storing up goods for their own use. Basically what that means is, is that if you've got an extra robe, it should be kept in the robe storehouse. You don't keep extra robes in your kuti. There's no reason for that. And in fact, if you keep them in the kuti, they could be eaten by animals, too. So there's no reason for you to be responsible for them. Put them in some places designed for that. So the monks generally don't store up anything. Uh, and so that also includes such things as foods, drink, clothing, vehicles, fragrances, material possessions, all of that kind of stuff. Think of it like this. This is actually the easy way of thinking about it. And that is, everything you own, can you pick it up and carry it with you when you leave? Nope. Then you don't own it, do you? Exactly. Right, because you can walk away from it. And that's what they're, they're, they're getting at here, is let's not own things that we can't pick up and walk away. Well, how about a robe and a bowl uh, and, and a bit of camping equipment? Yeah, I can pick that up and I can walk away with it. That's all I yep. need. If I can carry it, I can, I can manage. And if I can't carry it, then it's a burden. <laughs> if it's too heavy to carry, it's a burden. Uh, and so this is a way of, of, of doing it again. So they're talking about it this. And then they say there are some aesthetics and Brahmins who, while enjoying foods given in faith, still engage in seeing shows. Well, we've already been talking about that. So uh, this middle section is actually just a kind of a repeat. Mm -hmm. uh, here they also mention about gambling. Yeah which is another way of buying and selling. Yep. Uh, and so this is their ethics. And so let's, let's move on down uh, for the sake of a little brevity here. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, refrain from argumentative talk. All right, so let's talk about that in the sense of argumentative talk is almost always harsh anyway. And it has to do argumentative in the sense of I'm right, and you're wrong. Uh, is, where is that? 
it is uh, oh, yeah, 53.3. Okay. It's, it's yep. uh, down in, uh, just a little bit lower down in. This is about, about the end of it. Yep. Argumentative it. talk. Um, you can say, in fact, they're going into detail right above that when they say you don't understand such teachers and training. I understand the teaching and training. What you understand is, re- and is wrong and what I uh, am saying is right. I mean, that's an argument, right? That's what yep. that is argument right there. And so they're saying refrain from such argumentative talk. Um, it's a hard lesson to learn, but <laughs> no argument has ever been won. Yep. No argument has ever been won. Uh, Mark Twain said something about that. Uh, uh, in the sense that uh, you you can never convince a fool of anything. And it is very difficult to teach, a, uh, to convince a wise man of anything. <laughs> <laughs> and so people have to basically see it for themselves. And in that regard, um, we see in the West, even in not just in religions in general, in Christianity in particular, but we see it in Buddhism to where the meditation teachers and whatnot are competing with each other. Yep. This is it right here. Meditation teachers, I don't care if he's wrong on every point, he's still my friend. Mm-hmm. If his intention is to help people, then they're probably getting some help <laughs> anyway. And it's not my business. So it's, it's not a good idea to get into arguments about my teaching is good and yours is wrong, or I know better than, than you do. But mm-hmm. in fact, we might be able to work in, with a sutta together to come to some agreement about what the sutta says. And yep. that then will give us um, uh, a means of communication. But telling him what he said is wrong is... Gosh, that's what the internet's all about, isn't it? Yep. I mean, that's Reddit. It's right here. <laughs> yep. One argument after another. All right. Yep. So the next one: some aesthetics and Brahmins who, while enjoying food uh, given in faith, still engage in running errands and messages. Okay, so we've gotten that one before. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we go to the longer section of ethics. But here's something very interesting, and that is is that all of a sudden the dialogue between the king and the Buddha is missing. This would have been a point, if you're going to actually make these connections about one uh, uh, early ethics teaching, one middle ethics teaching, and then a long message teaching, a Mahasila, then the Buddha would have, like he did with the other two, talk about the value of this sila. Yep. And so um, I think that this sutta then um, is kind of telling in the sense that it is really overly doing the sutta uh, in the sila, and at the same time, they've kind of lost their thread. Of the, the conversation. Yeah. Okay. But now, this Mahasila is taking a different bent to where the first two were similar. Here, 
basically we're talking about how monks do sometimes in other religions especially make money mm -hmm. such things as limb reading uh oneology which i think is looking at the skull uh, uh, divining celestial patterns, interpreting dreams, um, divining bodily marks, divining holes in cloth gnawed by mice, <laughs> fire offerings, ladle offerings, offerings of husk, rice powder, and all of this is all about trying to make to um, magical things. Magical fortune telling is basically what this Mahasila is about. Now then, the next one is a frame from such um, unworthy branches of knowledge and wrong livelihood. Okay. We do not interpret animal cries. As all the king is going to battle or something like that. And so this is a way of ethics. And you can also see that this is almost frivolous, except that now... It's dangerous because people are paying money and listening to what's being said and possibly taking action based upon stuff that the monks are making up out of their head. Mm -hmm. I once saw, not once, I've seen this monk several times right. in the United States. This monk actually had a car and that he drove around from what to what, just like you would expect a monk to do. But in the back of this um, uh, station wagon, he had some magical stuff, including a great big footprint of the Buddha. And what oh, he hi. would do is he would go around from what to what to what and, and do magic stuff for the lay people. Because the monks in the buildings, they're not going to do that stuff for them. They'll do ceremonies, but they're not going to go divining things and whatnot. They'll give you a blessing, but then at the end of the blessing, they won't say, it shall be done or anything like that. So this monk would go around and do his magic tricks. And actually, I was at two or three different watts where the monks in that watt threw this guy out. Yeah, I was going to say. Get back in his truck. Or his van, and he would ride off to another watt. Well, they've got hundreds of watts in the United States, and so he can just keep going around and around doing his magic. Uh, I imagine that there are monks like that in, in Thailand also, that they yeah, really do want to do the bones or whatever magic, um, uh, cutting up chickens' heads, or I don't know, it's just all kinds of diminution. In fact, there's a long, long list of this stuff in the Brahmachala uh, um, Sutta, Dinganakaya number one. About half okay. that sutta is listing magic tricks that the monks are to refrain from. All right. Doing magic. It goes on. This includes reading marks on gems, cloths, clubs, swords, spears, um, arrows, weapons, the marks on men, women, boys, girls, male, female. In other words, he just keep, keep going. Uh, no magic about elephants, horses, buffaloes, cows, bulls, <laughs> goats, rams, chickens, quails, <laughs> monitor lizards, <laughs> rabbits, tortoises, 
deer, none of that stuff. We refrain from such unwholesome branches of knowledge and wrong livelihood. Mm-hmm. So this is basically what we're talking about here, and it goes on about when is the king going to go out, or when is it going to be an eclipse of the moon or the sun or the stars? It just goes on and on. This is the whole point that the uh, that the Buddha is making here, is that the monks who were living, they live off of the alms round that's given freely by the people, and they do not then engage uh, in earning living by unworthy branches of knowledge and wrong livelihood. Mm-hmm. And so this is what this point of the ethics is all about, is not doing magic. Also, the next one is not making arrangements or giving marriage. That in fact, in Thailand, this is all done by the grandmothers. In the Jewish tradition, they actually have matchmakers. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. You know? (laughs) Get me a girl. <laughs> I was about to get really dirty there, but <laughs> it rhymed, but it's not appropriate. <laughs> All right. So um, it's talking about casting spells for good or bad luck. Any of that kind of stuff is to be refrained from. Um, uh A mendicant thus accomplished in ethics sees no danger in any quarter in regards to their ethical restraint. In other words, the monk restrains himself from doing all these. It's like a king who has defeated his enemies. He sees no danger from his foes in any quarter. Yeah, they're not worried because they've not done anything wrong. That's exactly, in fact, this is another way of saying the entire teaching of the Buddha in one statement. After you have defeated your enemies, there is no danger because there are no foes in any quarter. Mm-hmm. Okay, that would be like Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. But now he's talking about it in the sense of a king, because we've got a king here talking about it. Mm-hmm. And so we look at it from the perspective of the king who can be comfortable. Well, now, if you go back, you can recognize, wait a minute, this particular king has already gotten himself into quite a mischief about his own dad, and he has reason to have enemies. Yep. And so he has reason to be afraid. But if we have a good sila. In other words, if if I preside over a marriage or I make a match of marriage and the marriage falls apart, then I have fear of retribution. If I read the guts of an animal and say that king is going to attack and then that king doesn't attack, then I can be held responsible. And so in this regard, I don't have any enemies because I've not opened my mouth. And because there are no enemies, I have no danger. Now, uh, that, that, that is a fruit of the uh, salmon. That is salmon yeah. I follow right there <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah. Is to not yeah. have any enemies. In the same way, a mendicant thus accomplished in ethics sees no danger in any quarter in regard 
to his ethical restraint. So um, there is another passage where the Buddha makes this point in the sense of that if you do no wrong, then you have no regret now and no regret in the future. So it's got double benefit. Okay, so after we do the ethics, this is how a mendicant is accomplished in ethics, is because not only is he restrained from his own behavior in the sense of the, uh, the precepts, he also is uh, restrained from doing magic or doing things for others, which you could al- almost go so far as to call them errands. Mm. or being a messenger only this time I'm being a messenger from outer space saying the future you know my message is from the future or something okay so now we go into the next part which is um, samati and we know already that the word samati is does not translate as immersion mm-hmm the jumping in the water is immersion. Samadhi yeah. is collecting things together. Yep. Also, the idea of immersion has the quality that this guy is so absorbed in what he's doing that yep. he's not aware of what's going on around him. Okay, so we're doing exactly the opposite of immersion. We're doing the gathering together of everything so that we're here in the present moment with all of the faculties. That's a major distinction that I think uh, needs to be put into the suttas uh, in the English translations. Because um, it's not this particular monk who's making this problem. This is the problem that all the translations have. Uh, This misunderstanding of uh, what was really going on based upon the fact that the translations were done before anybody knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. Riles Davies, I.B. Horner, the Polytext Society, they were interested in the language, not what the language was teaching. And so for that, they missed out on a lot of stuff. I did find um, Horner's uh, translations to be a bit difficult to read. <sighs> First cut. But he was also instrumental in getting the poly lexicons going. And so mm-hmm. we have to thank him for that. Without his yeah. work, we wouldn't have a clue. That's true. Yep. But it needs to be refined and, and, and changed. Okay, so now the first thing is, is that sense doors. But before let's do that, um, Samvara it Indira... Samvada, okay, so the Indira here is the word that's being used as the senses. There is also a Hindu god that's named Indira. I'm at 4.312 now, about two-thirds to the end. 4.312. Mm-hmm. Or four point three two one. Three two one. Oh, you're reading the title. Okay. I'm I was looking for the, it in the text. Okay. Okay. Well, since restraint is that in Derivada um 
Indiriyasamvara is restraining the senses. Okay, well, that's exactly what we're doing in the meditation retreat. Yep. Okay, is is that we keep our eyes look uh, pointing downward, that we um, uh, close off, but mostly the sense door that we want to work with is this one, the mind yep. sense door. Yep. Okay. Definitely. When a noble disciple sees a sight with his eyes, they don't get caught up in the features and details. In other words, you see a pretty girl over there, you just see her and move on. You don't just stare or grasp yeah. hold. Okay. You don't, you don't you dissect. You don't get caught up. Mm -hmm. Exactly. If the facility of sight were left unrestrained, Bad, unskillful qualities of desire and aversion would become overwhelming. Now, this word overwhelming is a bit problematic here. Um, it's a bit problematic because people don't like the idea that we're actually overwhelmed, but uh, it actually is the case. Basically, the sight that we have desire for becomes the boss. Yep. And yep. That that's the most interesting thing, and so we get caught up on that. Yep. Um, and for this reason, we practice restraint in guarding the faculty of sight and achieving that restraint. We do that also with sound, with odors, with flavors, with touch of the body, knowing the thought. We don't get caught up in the future, uh, the features in detail. So even thought is here. And let's mm -hmm. look at the uh, in the Pali. Ah, look at that. Manasa is not sh not shitta. It's manasa damam. Okay, which is um, taken by mana. Mm-hmm. So the the dhamma of the of the mind. Uh, so what's mana? Uh, manusa is actually the part of the mind that we can uh, uh, see. It's, right. the, it's, the, um, it's not the speaking kind of mind, it's the kind of mind. Uh, and so here they're talking about having known or learned to, uh, we still, um, we don't get caught up with it. Sure, yep. So, if the faculty of mind were left unrestrained, bad and skillful qualities of desires and aversion would become overwhelming. For this reason, we practice this restraint. Okay, so we're actually listing now over and over again more and more benefits yep. of, of the Samanaphala. When they have this noble sense restraint, they experience an unsullied bliss inside themselves why because we're not grasping and clinging mm -hmm. and going out and wanting things we become satisfied inside that's how a, 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 a mendicant guards the sense doors 
And how does a mendicant have mindfulness and situational awareness? That situational awareness is really something that's worth looking at. Uh, and here, actually, we can look at the, that the king is back into it. He says, uh, Kanacha Maharaj, Bhikkhu Sati Sampati uh, Janisa, Sati uh, or Sam, Sama Sam uh, Gato Hoti. So, this Sama Nagato is, um, is the, it's the here now, it's the being in it, in the moment. You're translating as situational awareness, but it's the awareness of this situation. That's, it's um, kind of confusing the way that he's written it here, but it's not wrong. Uh, you can see the word sati. Sati sound. like awareness of awareness. Mm hmm. Exactly. That's a good point. Right. That we know and that we know we know. We see and that we see we see. It's when a mendicant acts in situational awareness when getting out and coming back. Okay, this passage comes from the Madhyam Nikaya number 10. This is in the... Um, uh, right. This is in um, the, the, the coming and going of the, of the body. It's when a mendicant acts with sensual, uh, uh, situational awareness when going out, coming back, when looking ahead, when looking aside, when bending, when extending the limbs, when bearing the outer robe, the bowl, when eating, drinking, chewing, tasting, when urinating, defecating, when walking, standing, sitting, sleeping, walking, speak, um, uh, speaking, and keeping silent. Okay, so we can see that all of this list means that um, to be, start to become aware of what the body is doing. Start watching, start noticing. When we're eating, just eating. A lot of times when people are eating, they're either, like in a restaurant, they're talking and, and, and eating. And another one is that they're playing with their food. Mm -hmm. With the utensil chopping and, or stirring or whatever like that. That is better when we're eating to just eat. Mm -hmm. To mindfully eat. All right. So uh, this is how a mendicant has mindfulness and situation awareness. The next one is uh, Santosa, contentment. You see, that's one of the things that the householder, the bondsman, and the king, none of those guys has contentment. Uh -huh. And how is a mendicant content? It's when a mendicant is content with his robes to look after the body and alms food to look after his belly, wherever they go, they set out taking only these things. It's like a bird. Wherever it flies, the wings are the only burden. I'd never thought about that before. The wings of a bird are his burden, but it's also his transportation. Mm -hmm. But that's all that he's got. Sometimes you'll see a bird carrying something, but not often. Crows are like that. Ravens will do it, but 
mostly birds when they fly, they fly alone. <laughs> yeah, Don't give yourself their own wings. Don't give yourself yeah. extra burdens. Mm -hmm. So in this way, the mendicant is content. He's got enough. Whatever we've got now, that's enough. Wherever they go, they set out taking only these things. This is how a mendicant is content. But it's kind of missing out on, well, how did he get like that? Well, he got that way by recognizing the kinds of things that, did, that made him uncontent, and he disposed of them. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we go into the suttas, or uh, excuse me, into the hindrances. And you and I have been over this before. Yep. And in fact, I can tell exactly where he got this stuff, or the, the author of this uh, sutta, because he got it out of sutta number 39 of the Majjhima Nikaya. Because, because he's teaching all of those um, metaphors, analogies, those allegories are all built mm -hmm. in here. Okay, when they have this noble spectrum of ethics, this noble sense of restraint, this noble mindfulness and situation awareness, and this noble contentment, they frequent a secluded lodging, a wilderness, the root of a tree, a hill, a ravine, a mountain cave, a charnel ground, a forest, an open air, a heap of straw. Again, that passage is pulled right out of several of the suttas that I know. Any meal after the meal, they return from alms round, they sit down cross-legged with their body straight, and establish mindfulness right there. That's good because the uh, normally it says establishing mindfulness to the four. And a lot of people to have the, the idea that the uh, mindfulness to the four, which means mindfulness what what is right in front of us. Right. Okay, but it's kind of old English that uh, Honer was using there. Here, he's actually using a better translation in the sense of mindfulness right here. If we right. talk about it as mindfulness to the fore, that gives people the idea of the nimitta and the nose and the, and this kind of right in front. Right, yeah. yeah as it opposed does. to this right in front. Okay. Which is right here, right now. Mm -hmm. All right. Giving up desires for the world. They meditate with a heart of uh, rid of desire, clean, cleansing the mind of desire. Okay, so that's the first hindrance, is giving up uh, desire, giving up ill will, giving up dullness and drowsiness, giving up restlessness and remorse. Which Restlessness and remorse is, by the way, what people spend most of their time in. Just mulling over the past, just remorsing and, 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 and uh, but now we're going to meditate without these things. Giving up doubt is the last one. Suppose a man who had gotten into debt were to pay, would to apply himself to his work and his efforts. Okay, so the, here's the, the analogy of debt. Getting in debt and getting out of it is like uh, having hindrances and throwing them out. And so we go uh, that when he's out of debt, he's filled with happiness. And then suppose a man who was sick, suffering great ill. Well, we've talked about that. When we get well, 
we start to think uh, and be feel happy about mm-hmm. it. Suppose a man uh, was a bond servant. They belonged to someone else and were unable to go about as they wished. And then they get set free. Or like the, uh, in the case earlier in the sutta, the guy just takes a hike. <laughs> he goes <laughs> off into the woods. <laughs> and he is free from his bond servant. Yep. And that gives us happiness to be free from our obligations. You see, being a bond servant is very much like at bond with a mortgage, that you've got a debt to pay, you've got to service that debt. That means yep. you've got to go and do the job that makes the money to pay off that debt. So these things are actually deeply interrelated. Yep. Another way of looking at it is, is that I saw something in the store that I wanted. And And now it owns me. And I am bound to go buy that thing. So now I've got to go be a bondsman and make the money so that I can go buy the thing that I have bound myself to. And we we are in fact slaves like that. We enslave ourselves. We enslave ourselves to ideology, religious... We, how about political parties? <laughs> and so this is how people uh, do that. And we can see that that's the same analogy that when we would free ourselves from that, that's like freeing ourselves in it, in our mind in this present moment, in this instant. I can yep. become free of that. And then that joy and happiness can arise. Okay, so uh, now at the end of it, we say, but when these five hindrances are given up inside themselves, inside themselves, or the merchant, or the mendicant, or the uh, the recluse, the salmonen, uh, in regards to this freedom from debt, good health, uh, a release from prison, emancipation, and sanctuary, seeing that the hindrances have been given up in them. Watch the sequence of events now. This is um, SC 75.1. This is profound. Seeing that the hindrances have been given up, joy springs up. Being joyful, rapture springs up. When the mind full of rapture, the body becomes tranquil. When the body is tranquil, they feel bliss. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we just read that in Angutara number 5.26 just a couple of <laughs> weeks ago? Yep. This is it. And it, this is the definition of first jhana right here yep. and there, even before they get into jhana. Yep. So he's talking about the jhana right here with the giving up of the hindrances. Joy springs up. Uh, being joyful, rapture springs up. With the mind full of rapture, the body becomes tranquil. When the body is tranquil, they feel bliss. And the mind becomes not immersed, but unified. And now we talk and begin it like this. Uh, this first, he's translating the jhana as absorption. Mm-hmm. He's heard it before. That's how it's been given to him. We can't complain about the translator using this language. It's so common. Uh-huh. But it's not correct. Because we have just seen the first John in action right above that. 
And so they're now about to talk about the first jhana, uh, and that's what that uh, pathama. Pathama actually means kind of um, the big number one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome qualities, which is the hindrances, they enter and remain in the first jhana, which we just described up above which has the rapture and bliss born of seclusion while placing the mind and keeping it connected. Okay, in Pali there you can see uh, Pathanam Janam uh, Upasampajan Viharati. Now that last word in that phrase um, is actually the, the, the verb and it means to dwell. Now this is, I think we've talked about this word before, but the word vaharati is the same word, in fact, the word T. We know we can take that T off because that's an, exp- uh, an expletive. Yep. Vihara. T is yep. the way it's said. Okay, so uh, this vihara is actually the word that is used in Sri Lanka for the Wat. And in fact, the ah. Wat, the word Thai, the Wat, the Thai word Wat, actually is a contraction of this word. Okay. And there it's used as a noun, here it's used as a verb of dwelling or living in. So the Wat is actually a place to live, it's a dwelling place. And here we are going to actually dwell in that first jhana, and that word is um, with, uh, with reaching, that upasampaja. So we're going to get, we're going to dwell, we're going to get in and dwell in this first jhana. And we do that with, uh, so, vivacha came into vivacha akusal, a kusala, you can see a kusalati in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, damani, uh, uh, savatikam, which means to, it's accompanied by. So we, we see this quite secluded. Uh, Kami is um, uh, wishes and desires of, and they, the, the dictionary can't get this vivacha, but that's actually. Uh, the kind of thought, applied and sustained thought is what they're starting off here. Mm-hmm. So actually you have to rearrange the English to even find the words in the Pali. What's at the end is actually here in the beginning. And so we become secluded and that's what then All right, now here's the next part. I can tell you that this part probably came from Sutta number 119, where these jhanas are actually discussed, where they talk about it, they drench, steep, fill, and pervade the body with rapture and bliss, born of seclusion. There is no part of the body that is not spread with rapture and bliss, born of seclusion. The seclusion of what? The hindrances. Mm-hmm. having the mind free we become completely relaxed the whole body relaxes nothing special Okay, it's just the way that they talk about it drench, steep, fill 
Uh, pervade is another one that's used to spread over the body. Yes, we just let the whole body come to a state of relaxation. And then he gives this analogy that is in that sutra that I talked about. It's like when a death bathman attendant or his uh, their apprentice pours bath powder into a bronze dish, sprinkling it little by little with water. They knead it until the ball, uh, till the bath powder is soaked and saturated with moisture spread through inside and out, yet no moisture drips out. Okay, let's use a different analogy because I used to watch my grandmother make biscuits. Yep. And she would take and spread a whole <clears throat> bunch of flour out and then she would take her fingertips into this bowl of water and she would do it like this. Yep. Uh, uh, pours bath powder into a bronze dish and then sprinkling it little by little with water. Okay, if you think about it like that, what Vrishjana is is that we must sprinkle joy, and as sprinkling joy, we become completely filled with joy, but it's not oozing out or leaky. Mm -hmm. It's just that we feel confident and pleasant with the body relaxed. Yep. And so this is actually quite doable when we understand it from that perspective, but unfortunately, the language is almost always too highfalutin. In the same way, a mendicant drenches, steeps, fills, and pervades his body with rapture and bliss, born of seclusion. There is no part of the body that is not shred with rapture and, and bliss, born of seclusion. Well, again, bliss is too high a word. The word actually in the Pali is sukha. But we tend to make everything a superlative mm -hmm. rather than just not suffering. It's uh, got to be something very special. And then he says, this great king is the fruit of the aesthetic life that is apparent in the present life, which is better and finer than the former ones. This is the first time that the Buddha has said this as the answer to the question before we had it that the bondsman took a hike. Then mm -hmm. we had it that the householder took a hike, and we could see the value in that. But then look at this. We had to spend half of the sutta before the Buddha said that a third time. And when does he say it? Right after first jhana. This is mm -hmm. an important point. The rest of this um, area here about the higher jhanas, let's not read that because it's just basically copied out of sutta number 119. But okay. you can see that uh, in this same way, the mendicant drenches, fills, pervades, and spreads their body with rapture and bliss born seclusion. There is no part of the body that is not born of seclusion with rapture and bliss, okay, uh, born of seclusion. This part of it then ends, and then they put this part in. The king, this great king, is the fruit of the aesthetic life. So now he's really nailed it. This is an important point right here that the, that the, uh, that the Buddha is making is, is that once one gets into first jhana, this is actually the fruit. And yet they've copied the, uh, this from, uh, from other suttas about uh, the second jhana 
and the third. And there's some good stuff in there as worth reading, but we're going to pass down uh, that down to the eight, eight knowledges. Mm-hmm. Okay. When their mind has become immersed in samadhi like this, purified, bright, flawless, rid of corruption, pliable, workable, steady, and imperturbable, they extend it and project it towards knowledge and vision. Now, a lot of people have the idea that because of the way that this is listed, uh, number one, two, three, four, that one has to have gone to the fourth jhana, and the fourth jhana is what makes the mind uh, purified, bright, flawless, rid of corruption, pliable, workable, steady, imperturbable. But that's not the definition of fourth jhana. That's the definition of first jhana. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people will miss that because they think that all oh, you have to have all the jhanas before you can go through the knowledges. No. If you look at sutta number 48, you, it says very specifically about it that you need to get to the first jhana so that then you can go through the actual teachings of the Buddha. And so now that we do that, we can understand that this body is physical, is made up of the elements, is purified by mother's milk and, and supported by father from rice and porridge and liable to impermanence, to wearing away erosion and breaking up and destruction. So we begin to know that that's the body. It's going to die. And this uh, consciousness of mind is attached to it, tied to it. Suppose there was a burrow gem, and so he's got this, I don't really know what this is. It must have meant something way back when. But uh, uh, in this same way, the mind that has become immersed in samadhi, purified, bright, flawless, rid of corruption, and imperturbable, they extend it and project it towards the knowledge and vision. I guess they're talking about the girl was beautiful or something, mm-hmm. and anybody who looks at it can see it like that. Um, and so this too, in other words, we understand that this body is going to break up and fall away. Yep. And that's all it is. And that's actually a fruit of the aesthetic's life, is to recognize the, the consciousness is bound to the body, but I am not the body. Mm-hmm. Okay, again, they talk about uh, mind-made body. Now, this I know sounds quite magical. In fact, this looks like it came more from the Vasudhimaga, even though the Vasudhimaga was done about 800 years after this was done. So this stuff was already there. We can understand this in two ways. One, we can understand it magically in the sense that this mind-made body is a mind-made body that is actually physical. And then we can think of it as a mind-made body that's actually mind-made and stays mind-made. Yeah, so our our um, experience of the body is all... Um, well, we only know it to the extent that the mind knows it right so, and everything and else so, as well 
And so most about what we know about the body is not the physical body, it's the mind-made body. Yeah. And we can understand that this way, or we can understand it the way that is translated, which makes it look really magical, that I'm going to... Um, create another body. Create a dozen versions of myself, and they're all standing out in the yard doing various tasks. Because that's the analogy that you find in the Vasudhimaga. Oh, you do? Okay. But, but here it doesn't show anything like that. But it does talk about the fact that they are separate, that the actual body and the man-made body are separate. Mm-hmm. And they use the analogy of pulling the sheath out of the sword. This yep. is a sheath. This is a sword. Yep. This man-made body that I, or this mind-made body that I have is not the same as the physical body. Yep. And so when we understand that, then that's another of the knowledges that we can have. But a lot of people I have the idea, oh, if I do the fourth jhana, then that means that I can do magic tricks. Yeah. I can appear to be someplace. And so that brings up a lot of greed. That's a hindrance. Yep. We have to throw that stuff out. Suppose a a person was to draw a sword out of the scabbard. They think, this is a sword, this is a scabbard. They're different. Yep. The sword has been drawn out of the scabbard. Suppose a man was to draw a stake out of its sloth, or a snake out of the snake skin. Same thing. Mm -hmm. The snake skin is one thing, the snake is something else. If we can understand our man, the way that we make our mind about our body is different from the actual physical body, then we're getting this analogy. If we think that the guy is going to get so good that he can make that man-made body come out and take physical shape, that's magic. Yep. Uh, so, from this body, they create another body, physical man-made, complete in all of its various parts, uh, not deficient in faculty. So, when we understand that we manufacture our own reality. This too great king is a fruit of the um, ascetic's life. This is apparent right here and now. A lot of people will think, oh, that means if we have magic, then that's going to be the fruit of the uh, ascetic life. No, understanding how we manufacture stuff in the mind. That's what is uh, the value. Uh, The next one is uh, the psychic powers, and that you and I have already talked about this word, uh, idia. Here it is, idia vi, idia vi, vid, nana. Yep. N- nana is, uh, is the knowledge, okay? So let's see if I can, it's hard to get the mouse to go where I want it to go. And, okay, all right. But if you look at the actual part, Polydeaf, prosperity, success, uh, a splendid attribute, an accomplishment, um, and that it's only number two when it becomes a supernatural Uh or a magic power. That basically the word idia is a power of success. Uh The power of being able to accomplish something. The power of uh, feeling wealthy or prosperous 
in the sense of being content. So these, these psychic powers are actually very practical things that we can come up with, but this is actually presented in the sutta here uh, and translated as magic mm-hmm. or psychic powers. Um, They will many kinds of psychic powers multiplying themselves and becoming one again and going unimpeded through walls, a rampart, or a mountain, as if through space. So this is a very typical um, uh, belief, but this does not come out of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. This is something that's gotten added to Buddhism from uh, different or older belief systems. That really the uh, the idea is real power, the power of success, the power of satisfaction, not the power of magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's go down a way, supposative, goldsmith, okay, so they're talking about uh, being able to create things. Yep, being successful uh, in creating things. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this way, when their mind has become uh, unified like this, bright, uh, flawless, workable, and mounted, they extend it and project it towards power. What is that power? That power is the power of feeling successful, mm. of feeling powerful. Actually, it's the right noble attitude. And that is that right noble attitude that, too, is a great fruit mm-hmm. of the aesthetic's life. But if they believe in magic, then they will not have the benefit. They will not have the fruit of the aesthetic's life because they're looking at it towards magical power. Yep. So when we see it as, in fact, no, it's when the mind gets into first jhana that we can actually see pity, sukha. We can see success. We can see that we're free from uh, fear. Yep. That we become fearless. That's what we're getting at. That's the real power. Now, the clear audience, I would go so far as to say what they're really talking about is our ability to listen. Yep. Most people, when they're in hindrances, they're not really paying attention to what's going on, either to the devas or the big people, nor to um, the ordinary people. We don't listen to each other. We're too busy trying to figure out what I'm going to say if I can ever get you to shut up. Yep, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Ah, but here we're talking about really the ability to listen, and we need to see that as something real, not something that's become magical the way that it's talked about. And they do talk about it in the sense that you can hear drums and, and sounds and, and things like that. Uh, the next one is um, comprehending the minds of others. And that, but it is used in the sito. The, the knowledge or nana of other people's minds, understanding mm-hmm. their ways, okay? Basically, when we are selfish, we only see it from our own perspective. Yep. So one's right view means that we can actually comprehend what other people are feeling. 
they will show us. Uh, it's actually quite common knowledge that um, someone will have an attribute in this particular moment, like he's angry or something, and everybody in the room can tell it but him. Yeah. Okay, so that means that everybody, to a degree, has this knowledge of what's in the mind of others. But when we practice it kind of as a skill, when we actually are now in the here now, paying attention to what other people are doing. Are they nodding their head? Are they shaking it side to side? Are they <laughs> like this or whatever? If we're paying attention, then we can tell what people are doing. Yep. And so we can see the reality of the situation again has become a bit magical here. But if we can, in fact, see what people are thinking and feeling, they understand the minds of other beings and individuals having comprehended this with their own mind. What does that mean? That means that oh, we're all really kind of alike. Mm -hmm. That the reason that I know that uh, redneck uh, Americans can become afraid and then vote for Trump is because I've been there, done that. Mm -hmm. I know what those people were trained in. <laughs> I know that mind. I've been there and I've done that. I've been That's in those why mental I states. can comprehend that mind. Yep. I don't like it very much, but I know what it is. And I can't go saying, what in the hell? Because I know what the hell. <laughs> yep. And this also, they understand the minds of other beings and individuals and have accomplished that. This is another fruit. Mm-hmm is to be able to be there for people, to see what they're doing. Now we come into even a deeper level of magic, and that is comprehending past lives. But wait a minute, it does not have to be as stark as they try to make it. Yep. That in fact, the past lives, I've had hundreds of past lives. I was a student in that school. Then I was a student in that school over there, a different person. <laughs> I know. In fact, this was a big deal for my third grade because my third grade teacher, a little background. This has got nothing to do with me, just the situation. In the 1930s, the school was blown over by a, a tornado, and oh. my grandfather rebuilt the school. Ah. It had his name on it, and every teacher in that school knew that the school was built by the guy who lives down this block and over a block. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when it after my grandfather died, and it was time for my my mother decided that we've got to go move to North Carolina. There was plenty of time, and we moved in the middle of the year. So I spent first part of the third grade in one school in Oklahoma, the school that my grandfather had built. And I was kind of a celebrity. If, if there was any student in the school that was any kind of celebrity, I was in on that list of them. Uh -huh. right? And I remember that third grade teacher was especially kind to me. Yep. And teaching writing and whatnot. And then we moved to South Carolina. And the teacher there was a different teacher. And I remember that I struggled with that one, mm -hmm. that they were doing different things, that in fact, I, uh, as a student in the Oklahoma school, we were still printing. 
they were doing a script already in South Carolina, and I was behind. Mm-hmm. And on other issues. That made me actually a different person. I would yep. have, even nowadays, I would be a different person. But that time, uh, because of that school change, okay? So this is what we kind of understand now about Our past types. lives, is, yep. is that we do change. We don't have to die and get resurrected or whatever that we go through phases. And so when I was in that town, I had that name, I lived that way, I had these teachers, they treated me this way. And yep. when I went to that town, I had those teachers and they treated me that way, etc. And so this is very much a, um, a part of understanding that things come and go like that within our own minds. They do that with everyone. And we do not need the fourth jhana to have some sort of past life experience. Yep. That basically we can see that on an automatic level, that we spent a lot of time in the past, and sometimes the past is good and sometimes it's not. Yep. I was different from time to time. And so this is basically what we're talking about. Also, this part can, is coming from the Majjhima Nikaya, and it is actually presented as the three watches of the night. It's not say it doesn't say it, but that's where mm-hmm. this uh, uh, in the in the Majjhima Nikaya, this section of this sutta is oh, these last to, three bits, right? Yeah, the, these three parts uh, are the three watches of the night. What is that? The first one is knowing the uh, the past lives, and then the next one, which follows on with that, the comings and goings of beings. I become this, mm-hmm. and then I go away, and then later I come as this, and then I go away and I come this, okay? So the p- coming and going, you can see that in other people. Yep. And the analogy that they used in that part is being on a uh, the roof of a, uh, a building in the town square, and you see someone coming in to the door, and then someone else coming through back out the door. Yep. Right? The guy who went in there was a shopper. Yep. The guy who comes out of the store is now, um, let us say, a, uh, a bag carry man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Different person, the coming and going. He went in one thing, and he came out of something else. Yep. Exactly. This is, the, this is the coming and going, and that's the second watch of the night. And that this coming and going of beings does not have to be, you have to die to go, and then be born again um, from the womb of a woman in order to, uh, to come into being. That yep. we can't go into being on a regular basis. But now the important point about that third watch of the night... Is, is that the third watch of the night actually ends in daylight. Oh, it does? Yeah, the third watch of the night is late at night, and what happens at oh, really, yeah. really late yeah. at night is dawn. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> and that's an important point about that third watch of the night. Um, this is passed down. Let's see where it is. Okay. And that is when we begin to really see what's going on. We can see these past lives of I do this and then I do that and coming and going and all of that kind of stuff. 
But now the third watch of the night is when the mind finally wakes up and we begin to see these things as defilements. So when his mind is in that first jhana, when it is bright, purified, flawless, rid of corruption, pliable, workable, steady, they attend and project it towards the knowledge of ending defilements. Okay, so now we begin to pay attention to, this is actually the kind of post-soda pond after one becomes a soda pond, now we start to pay attention to the defilements in a really, really important way. This is suffering. Mm -hmm. So we see our greed is not, oh, I see that, I want it. But we say, oh, I see that, and if I want it, that's suffering. Yeah, getting attached to it. And see the defilements. When we see, I don't like that, that's okay, but when we see, I don't like that enough to get angry over, now it's a defilement. And so we begin to pay attention to things as if they were defilements. Why? Because that's what's painful, and that's what the real wake-up is. When the mind is really sharp, now we can see that stuff when it tries to come up. Mm-hmm. So this next line comes now from one of my favorite suttas, number two, the Saba Asava Sutta. It's actually in, in uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, is verse 11, when it says, and in this translation he's using, they truly understand. In Bhikkhu Bodhis translation, he uses, they wisely attend. Mm-hmm. And it generally has the same quality to it. Yep. Okay. They wisely attend, or they see things as it really, really is. And then comes this very famous phrase that has everything to do with how we practice Anapanasati at this level. And that is, this is suffering. Not that there is suffering, or maybe someday I'll see suffering. No, it's expressed as this. This is it. We begin to see it when suffering arises. This is suffering. Mm-hmm. Wanting something I don't have, this is suffering. Then we recognize, all oh, this is the cause of my suffering. In other words, we really investigate the Four Noble Truths, not as a literary work or uh, the answer to a question on an exam, but rather we begin to really see it. We wisely attend to it. It's not just understand, but it's paying really close attention that this is suffering. This is the reason for it. But even better than that, the next one, this is the end of it. This is the moment when I actually am free from suffering, and we need to know that. Mm -hmm. to come and pay wise attention to the fact that we're not in suffering. Mm -hmm. That it's not some faraway goal, oh, someday I'll be free from suffering. No, right here, this is the end of suffering. This is it, it's over now, right now. (laughs) Never mind about the future, right now, this is great. Mm -hmm. And this is the practice that ends suffering. This is what we mean by then the ending of the defilements is because now we're really paying attention to what's going on in reference to dukkha. Yep. And we begin to see what it is. Okay. 
They understand these are the defilements. This is the origin of the defilements. This is the cessation of the defilements. This is the practice that leads to the cessation of the practice. So when we talk about it, this is the practice, that means we naturally need to pay attention to the elements of that practice. Yep. How is my sati? How is my effort? Yep. How is my, right. How is my uh, um, uh, attitude right now? Is it a good attitude? What's a, what is my uh, the condition of my mind? Is it unified or is it scattered? Is it a monkey mind or is it stable and content? Always paying attention to it, mm -hmm. to all that stuff. Knowing and seeing this, their mind is free from those defilements, the defilements of sensuality, the desire to get something new. They call it here the desire to be reborn. Uh -huh. But we don't necessarily mean to take a new birth. It just means, in fact, let's look at the poly and see. Knowing Don't see anything about re, uh, birth here. I don't see it where he gets the idea of the desire to be reborn. I'm not. I'm not finding it right now. Maybe you can find it. I'm. I'm actually looking for jati and other things like that, and I, I'm not. I'm not seeing it. Um, but there is the idea to be released. Yes. Or, Anticipated, which I would guess would be uh, yeah. That's all it. That's all it is. I don't. I don't see anything about uh, uh, wanting to be reborn. When they are freed, they know they're free. That is so powerful. In that moment, when we recognize we're free from suffering right now, this is no yep. suffering. The mind is actually free. It's not a promise. It's not something way out there. It's something that we can do in the here and now. When they're free, they know they're freed. They understand that doing things over and over again or a spiritual journey, all of that's been ended. This journey is complete. What has been done, what, what had to be done, they say, okay, so what is needed to be done is done. And there's no more need to return to a state of existence or the, in, the, in the sense of the state of being somebody or being something. That we're okay as we are. But this also is, an, is a famous phrase. Uh, that the journey is done and what had to be done has been done. The job is over. You've heard me talk about that. The job that we need yep. to do is to get the mind free from the hindrances, free from the requirements, and then we're free. That's the job that needs to be done. So there is no return to any state of existence. So that's, um, that's permanent. It can be, but here would be an example is, is that someone came to the mendicant, he's down in the woods someplace, and they come and tell him, uh, your mother died. 
and it was her wish that you took over all the property. Right. He then, if he at that point becomes the son, he has be- he has become born in a state of existence. Right. All of a sudden, you see, before the guy came to announce that your mom died, he had no thoughts about the son, yep. all responsible for the um, the funerals or any of that kind of stuff. But when they yep. come and tell him, now is he going to buy that trip? Or is he going to just merely uh, say, um, may my brothers be well and happy and taking care of business? Uh-huh. And then he does not have to go get involved. No, he's not going to go to the funeral. No, he's not going to go prepare the body or any of that. That would be part of the becoming. So that would be an example of not returning to a state of existence. Uh-huh. Not returning to being the son or not returning to be the householder, not returning to that. That's what they're talking about here, but when it's stated to any state of existence, that sounds really highfalutin, doesn't it? It does, yep. Okay, suppose that in a mountain glen, there was a lake that was transparent, clear, unclouded, a person with good eyesight standing on the bank could see the... Uh, the mussel shells, the gravel, the pebbles, and the schools of fish swimming about and staying still. They'd think, this lake is transparent. I can see right through it. It's clear and uncloudy. And there are the mussel shells and the pebbles and the schools of fish swimming about. In this same way, when the mind has become immersed in samadhi, immersed in samadhi, when the mind becomes unified, try malleable, uh, flawless, rid of corruption, workable, steady, immutable. They extend and project it towards the knowledge of ending defilements. So just like we're looking in that, in that, we can see what's going on. Once we get the mind settled down, we can see defilements. We can see what's in there without uh, it uh, clouding the mind or getting. Uh, and so this is when he says, this too, great king, is the fruit of the aesthetic life that is apparent in the present, which is better and finer than the formal ones. Okay, to be free from defilements and to know that you're free from it. And great king, there is no other fruit of the aesthetic life apparent in this present life, which is better and finer than to be free from the defilements. That's what this, the whole point, in fact, of this sutta could be said right here. Yep. So this is when the king comes and says, oh, wow, that is so good. That is excellent, (laughs) sir. As if uh, he were writing an overturned or um, revealing the hidden or pointing out the path to the lost or lighting a lamp in the dark. So people with good eyes can see what is there. The Buddha has made the teaching clear in many ways. And then he says, I go for refuge to the Buddha, to the teachings and to the mendicant Sangha. Okay, this is it. You can see it right there. Esetam Bhante, Bhagavantam Saranam Gachami. Dhamanachan Bhikkhu Sangacha. All right. And so I go for refuge. 
for the Buddha, the Dhamma, and, and the Sangha. Uh, and so uh, that's actually quite common at the end of suttas, is for either the person to join the Sangha or to become uh, a, a lay follower, but in all cases we take refuge in the Buddha. You see, the, he went to all of those other guys and he didn't take refuge in them, he walked off. Yep. Because they couldn't answer his question and they got all involved with their philosophy, where the Buddha didn't give any philosophy much at all. Any philosophy that's there is kind of added by the translators and whatnot about the magical kinds of stuff. But there's no reason to have to see this stuff as magical. And it's also quite possible that if we see things magically, we'll miss the reality. Yep. And because of that, people will practice incorrectly in their meditation because they're wanting something. They're wanting past life experiences. Wanting something magical. Wanting something magical instead of wanting to become free from the defilements, wanting to become content and happy. And then he admits his great mistake. Uh. I think, in fact, this was put in there solely not for um, anybody other than a soak, because we're talking now about his great grandfather who killed his great great grandfather, right? Uh, right. <laughs> I have made a mistake, sir. It was foolish, stupid, and unskilled of me to take the life of my father. Just as uh, just and, and principled king for the sake of authority or the, for the sake of the greed of owning the kingdom. Please, sire, accept my mistake for what it is so I will restrain myself in the future. That's the important point. We do confess our wrongdoing to a senior like the Buddha uh -huh. so that we will restrain from doing it again. This is, this is actually part of the Paddy Mork. Part of the Paddy Mork is, is that uh, Aham Bhante, we have to confess all uh -huh. that we've done wrong so that when we enter into the reading of the Paddy Mork, Everyone who goes in has already confessed their sins and come to the restraint for the future so that now everyone who goes in is pure. Mm -hmm. That everything about the Buddha here has to do with not, re not necessarily um, retribution or revenge or punishment, but it's all about rehabilitation. A good example of that is uh, Angulimala, the guy who was out murdering, and the King Pasanati caught him, but he caught him when he had already a monk, and so he mm -hmm. just <laughs> he didn't even care. He says, "I got it, I got it right. You can have this guy. I don't." Want <laughs> Indeed, great King, you made a mistake. It was foolish, stupid, and unskillful for you to take the life of your father, and a just and principled king for the sake of sovereignty. Now there's one thing going on here also and that was King Bimbisara the father was already devoted to the Buddha. Yeah. And the now is the point in time of when the murderous son is also coming devoted. to the teaching of the Buddha. Right. And he's actually taking refuge in the Buddha now. Um, 
But since you have recognized your mistake for what it is and have dealt with it properly, I accept it. And I and for it is growth in training of the noble ones to recognize a mistake for what it is, to deal with it properly and commit to restraint in the future. When the Buddha had said this, uh, King uh, Ajari uh, Satu said to him, well, now, sir, I must go. I have many duties and much to do. No, it's not. It's late at night. And he just got reborn. This, this, this is just something that they copied out of some old other <laughs> sutta. In the reality, it, he would have said, well, now, sir, I must go. It is late. Uh, yeah. But he didn't do that. He says, <laughs> I have many duties and much to do. No, wait a minute. We read this sutta. We know what's going on. We're not going to yep. let them buy with that. But we can recognize that maybe that's just because they copied this out of another sutta. Mm -hmm. Please, great king, go at your convenience. A better translation would do uh, in the other ones is uh, go and do as you see fit. Or it's up to you. Mm -hmm. Okay. If it's time for you to go, go. That's up to you. Or do as you see fit. I don't see the word convenience in there. When the king, having approved and agreed with what the Buddha said, giving up from his seat, bowed and respectfully uh, uh, circled him. Okay, so now we see when he came, he had no respect for the Buddha. Mm -hmm. Now, as after all of this, now he goes and he respectfully circles the Buddha. Yep. Now he's doing the right ceremony, keeping him to the right, which means on the right side. So that means yep. that we're going actually around clockwise. We go around clockwise around the Buddha. We don't go counterclockwise. That would put us to the left. The right, right. side is the good side. I'll acknowledge you said that. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, it's a uh, it's a well-known Indian thing. The right side is the good side, and the left side is the bad side. Right. Right and left. In fact, the whole point about right and left politics, the right side is the aristocracy, the old guard, the conservatives. Mm -hmm. And it's been that way all along. Why? Because them what got what's left. Now, <laughs> well, never mind. Playing with words. So soon after the king had left, the Buddha addressed the mendicants. The king is broken. He is ruined. If he had not taken the life of the father, a just and principled king, the stainless immaculate vision of the Dhamma would have arisen in him tonight. In other words, even though he took what the Buddha was saying and, and greatly appreciated it, he still didn't get the point. Mm-hmm. And the Buddha is recognizing that, that not that he is ruined for all time or that he's broken for all time, but tonight in this conversation, right he is broken. 
and therefore he didn't get it too much. But he got a <laughs> he got a long dog. <laughs> mm.